Welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff twice this week. Yeah. Hopefully you listen to Monday's episode. That was episode 137. We just played catch-up. We shot the shit. We talked about games we'd played. We talked about news, including the uh, Captain America Civil War trailer. We had a big discussion on some PlayStation and Microsoft news, specifically the PlayStation VR and possible PS 4.5 rumor, things like yeah. that. So really interesting episode. Go listen to that. But if you're here now, this is Wednesday, and tomorrow night, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, is finally coming to theaters. Sean, I think the first time this movie was announced, we covered it in like episode 25 of our show. Right, yeah. So, that was season one of our show. We're in season five. This has been going on for a long time. This has been a running thing on our podcast. Yeah. It's finally here. Yeah, like now that like Star Wars has come out and like we've we've, we've put that to bed, I feel like it's like Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice is like the last thing that is like tying me to my college life. It's <laughs> like once this is over, I can finally like blossom and feel like a true adult human being. You know? Yes. No, it's been a long damn time. We've had a lot of weird ups and downs with just the marketing and build-up to this movie. Yeah, it's been I, a clusterfuck. You know what I feel like? I feel like a doomsday cultist. I've been predicting doomsday for, like, years. It's yeah. finally here. Yeah. I want to see what's going to happen. Then we very soon we can, Jonathan. Thank fucking God we can. All right, Sean, I'm so excited for this movie. I'm super excited. I, I don't think it's going to be good. I'm not excited for those reasons. No, me neither. I think we've covered pretty clearly... The marketing does not instill us with hope. No. Uh, and I'm a Which fan. Which is weird because a movie with Superman should be hopeful more than any other movie. And it should be pretty fucking easy to market a movie with the title Batman versus Superman. Yeah. But then they fucked up and they put Donald Justice in there. It's like, well, now you can't market this at all. That's a terrible subtitle. And, you know, I reiterate, I'm a fan generally of Man of Steel. You didn't like it. No. But, you, but, you know. it. Had, I liked pieces of it, though. Yeah, I thought it had potential. Saying. And I thought a Man of Steel 2 could have been really fucking good. And it could have been like a great, great modern Superman movie. But uh, there's, there's, we're, not, we're not ever getting another Superman movie. <laughs> oh, no, we're not, apparently. I don't know when they decided that. But anyway, we're getting the new Batman movie that apparently has Superman in it. Yeah. Um, Second build in his own goddamn sequel. Apparently Superman is the Daffy Duck of superheroes. Yeah, Ben Affleck has top billing. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. No, I, I'm so excited to see what this movie fucking is. What the reaction to it is, because I think it's had all this marketing, but the hype is very low. Yeah. I think the online community, there are pockets of people very excited for it. But I think overall, if you just talk to people in the world, I think a lot of people don't even know it's coming out. Yeah, I've talked to the people in my office. They have no real awareness of this as a movie. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't, I'm, I'm really curious. I don't think it's going to do that well at the box office. I don't think it's going to flop or anything. No. But, you know, Man of Steel made... $670 million. I actually looked this up earlier today. I think it's yeah, very... Because it would have scared me yeah. if you knew that off the top of your head. That was worldwide. And I would not be surprised if Batman v Superman fails to break that. 
And frankly, yeah. if it fails to break a billion, people are losing their jobs. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is I mean, this is their ploy to finally like compete with Marvel. And it's it's just it seems like it's maybe going to arrive as a thud. And who knows? The movie might be great. It might get word of mouth. People might love it. I don't know. But I mean, we're at the point where. We're a week out, and all the discussion is Zack Snyder giving interviews about the extended cut that he's already made that's 30 that's minutes longer. three hours long. He's like, it's, don't make a superhero movie that's three hours long. I know you already did that, Zack Snyder. Don't do it again. At least it was justified with Watchmen yeah, based sure. on a long book. But yeah, I and, and he's talking about that and saying, yeah, there were scenes we just wanted to include but couldn't because of the rating. And so you're already admitting that the version in theaters is not your preferred version. Yeah, which has, yeah. You don't... You don't do that until the movie's already out, you idiots. That this is <laughs> this has happened before. But anyway, and it's just I'm really curious to see what happens, what our reactions are, and I'm really excited to talk with you next week on the podcast about it. Yeah, yeah, and I'd like the other thing I'm really excited about it is like because I've been thinking about this a little bit since like that Daredevil season two came out. I was just thinking about like we we are like deep in the middle of this superhero age of media in general that it's like. All like I was, just, it felt like if you just like turned around and then looked back, and then all of a sudden it wasn't just movies; it was like every TV show is a superhero thing too now, you know. So, like DC's obviously really wants its piece of that pie because there are two people that make comic books. That's not true, but everyone thinks it's true. Marvel and DC, and Marvel's been doing gangbusters. DC has been working really hard on the TV stuff and seems to be coming out dividends there. But like their movie stuff has like like they've made those really good Batman movies, but. Like, that's not quite captured the thing that Marvel has. It can't be a continuous thing the way that Marvel has. And DC wanting a piece of that pie, I'm curious if their efforts might, like, contribute to that bubble finally popping. Because yes. eventually, eventually, while it might not seem like it now, we will come over the other side of that mountain and, like, something else will be the popular genre for a long time. But, like, eventually superheroes have to die. They have to go away. Vampires are going to come back. So, God, no. Anyway. Um, Space but, yeah. Westerns. I mean, this... Big. This is the culmination of a lot, but it's also the first steps into a, I think, different phase of this era. Yeah. And Either different phase or last phase. The, either one, <laughs> yes. And the thing is, Batman and Superman have by far the longest and most storied history in film yeah. of all the superheroes. Mm -hmm. You know, Superman was in cartoons dating back to the 30s. Yes, the Flash cartoons. They're still really cool. Yeah. I like those. And well animated. He's been in serials since the 50s. Batman has been in serials since then, and he's been in movies since the 80s, Superman in movies since the 70s. These guys, uh, Batman was on TV in the 60s. Yeah. I, I mean, Batman and Superman have the longest histories. I think they have the most ups and downs because some of the best superhero movies ever made are Batman and Superman. Yeah. And the absolute worst are also Batman and Superman. Yeah, yeah. Like, like fighting at the bottom of that dark, dark pit yes. are Batman and Superman movies. And so if you want to study the history of comic book movies, you start... Continue and end with Batman and Superman. Yeah, which and is appropriate for Superman in particular because he is the first superhero and he will be the last. Yes, he is the last son of Krypton. Yes, indeed. So that's what we're doing today. We are going to look through the history of this in the way we do, which is ranking. Yeah. So I have it, 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 not just us; it's the internet. Yes, everything has to be a competitive list. Which, frankly, for this is really fun because, as I said, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel and you're going to the straight top. Yeah. So. A lot of interesting stuff. What I've done is I realized a couple weeks ago, I have seen pretty much every Batman and Superman theatrical movie. And I did my research, and I found 
So here's my criteria. It's just a Batman or Superman movie, not a serial, but an actual film, that opened and played in theaters as its primary first exhibition. So, for instance, okay. ba- Batman yeah. Mask of the Phantasm counts. Return of the Joker does not. Yeah, Return so of the DVD release. Right. So they're both movies, and they're both great movies. Yeah. One, only one counts. Because if I open it up to direct-to-video movies, we would... That's, yeah, that is, yeah, no, that is not a hole you want to open up. No, there's a lot. Um, I actually just bought, I was at Best Buy today, and they had this for eight bucks. I bought Assault on Arkham, the Suicide Squad movie. I've heard that's good. Yeah, I want to see it. I have seen it. So, yeah, it's... And fucking, they, they package the shit out of those DC animated movies. It's got a Blu-ray, a DVD, and a digital copy for a 70-minute movie. <laughs> well, that, because if you're in the direct-to-home video release market, yeah. like, you got to make it a worthwhile purchase. Exactly. I respect so, that. I'm excited to see that. That's the one that came out around Arkham Origins and has that same cast. And I'm right, interested yeah. to compare it because that's a Suicide Squad movie, and we have a Suicide Squad movie coming out soon yeah. that might belong on this list depending on how much Batman is in it. We'll find out. Yeah, that's <laughs> this year. a really good question. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, Joker's clearly in it yeah. a lot and we know Batman is in it in some capacity. Yes, so whether it's Ben Affleck or his stunt double is the question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That'll be the determination. That's a really good point. All right, so, but that means there are 17 films that have released in theaters with Batman and Superman. You have heard of many of these. I guarantee you have not heard of one of them. Right. Maybe more than one. Um, but I made sure I'd seen all of them. Some of them I rewatched. Some I did some just clips of. Some I did not revisit. Sean, would you blame me for that? No, God, no. <laughs> okay. Like, and we, we should set this up right now. Like, I did not participate in the creation of this list specifically because some of these movies I didn't want to go back to or didn't want to watch for the first time. But yeah. I have seen most of these movies so I can actively contribute to the discussion. Yeah, so some I'm working from memory. Some it's more current. I have notes on some of these that I'll go through. Some I'm going to just go off the cuff. But uh, this is what we're going to do today. It's going to be fun. Great. I'm excited. And uh, stay to the end, because we're going to play a game we have not played on the podcast in a while, but you may remember, one of our favorite segments is before The Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out, Sean and I just got frustrated with the trailers and said, you know what? Not just the trailers, but the insane news reporting around that movie about like all the casting and all the characters, that about 80% of it was fucking all bullshit. Yeah. And so we decided, Sean, let's take everything we know and try to make a plot for this. Yeah. And it's a, it's, you should go listen to that segment if you've it's heard it. It's a better plot for that movie than what they came up with. And we have put way more stuff in it than they yeah. actually were obligated to. Yep, absolutely. Uh, we're going to do the same thing with Batman v Superman. And it'll be really fun to revisit that next week. Yeah. All right. But first, let's do See our how right we are. Like, viewers at home, make your scorecard. Yes. All right. So, but Sean, let's do the list. Yeah. We're going from worst to best, and we really are going from worst to best. Yes. I want to stress this that. This is a very dynamic list that has a lot of lows and a lot of highs. This isn't yes. like a tight, tight list no. of like margins, you know? Yeah. It was easy to know what was going on the bottom, what was going on the top. Yeah. Just, the middle was the hard part. Yeah. Anyway, let's start. Number 17, the lowest for me, and I think some will agree, 1983, Superman 3. Okay, now, yeah. A lot of what people, was the, did Superman 3 have a subtitle? No, that's okay, Superman okay. 4. Yeah. Now, a lot of people would say Superman 4 is the worst. And I do understand that. On a like technical level, it is the most inept. But it's like the, the political message and theology or, or ideology around Superman 4 is pretty fucking ridiculous we'll ta- as well. It's naive more than anything. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about it. But here's the thing. I think if you want to look at a series that falls from grace... There is no better example of that than Superman 1 to Superman 2 to Superman 3. And I find Superman 3 the most insulting because they took this incredible collection of talent. I mean, the guy who directed Superman 2 and 3, um, Richard Leister, I think is his name, something like that. Well, the guy who directed like half of Superman 2. Right. all Superman 3. He's a good... He made a hard day's night. 
Oh, this shit. Guy, I didn't yeah, know that. This guy knew what he was doing when it came to comedy and, and fun things like that. But they made this massive tonal miscalculation. And I think Superman 2 is a really awkward movie because Richard Donner knew what he was doing with the mix of comedy and drama. Mm-hmm. I think Richard Leister... Not so. I mean, I I don't know if it's his fault or the producers. There's a lot going on there, but I think Superman two, its final version, is fairly awkward because of that. And then Superman three, they have him. They have Christopher Reeves, who is still you could argue the best superhero casting ever. If you wanted to yeah, make that argument, I, mm-hmm. I would not disagree with yeah. you. You have him. You have Margot Kidder, who gets kicked out five minutes into the movie right, as Lois. Right. You have him going back to Smallville, which should be a fun story. And you hire fucking Richard, Richard Pryor, Pryor, one of the best comics of all time. Yeah. And what you have is, Richard Pryor, we've got nothing. You're going to be flop sweaty for two and a half hours trying <laughs> to make things work that don't. While Christopher Reeves is off in another movie, and we're going to have an evil Superman in there. We're going to. They didn't know what the movie was. Yeah. And it is insulting from moment one to the end of you have... The Richard Pryor of it is the most insulting because, poor dude, you can see him trying to make this work. Yeah. And he can't. And if Richard Pryor can't make it work... No one can. Yeah, you're goddamn right about that. If Richard Pryor can't make something funny, you have misfucking calculated. Yeah, the po- I mean, and this killed his movie career, which is sad. I mean, yeah, right away. That's, really sad. that's sad. You know, it it really killed this franchise because Superman Four may have been the final nail in the coffin, but that coffin was pretty tightly sealed after yeah, Superman. There was 3. no climbing out of Superman Three. No. And just there's so much bad shit in it. We talked on the last podcast about how Supergirl did a really good superhero goes evil story. Superman 3 is a really bad superhero goes evil story with his evil twin who just, I don't know, blows stuff over? Does he like blow the Leaning Tower Pisa over? I am having a hard time remembering specifics in Superman 3. I've definitely seen this movie. A theme on this list, and I would say a pretty recurring theme, is good and bad superhero comedy. Because Superman and Batman have both been in dramatic material and comedic material. And both can work in either fashion. I'm going to make an argument about Batman later on that might surprise some of you who are not particularly educated about a certain era of Batman history. Superman, when it went full-on comedic with Superman 3, they failed. There is a tonal, it's degrees, but if you get on the wrong side of that line, you become very insulting and pandering to the audience, and it just seems lazy. If you do it right, you get something like the Adam West series, which we'll talk about later, which is masterpiece. Yes. But... They didn't do it right with Superman 3, and I can see the argument that this is not technically the worst. I find it, of these 17 movies, the most pandering, insulting, and disappointing, especially because it really did kill what had been such a promising franchise. And, you know, you look at Superman 1 and how majestic and kind of noble and respectful that movie is of everything, and then it fell to... Richard Pryor pretending to ski off a building with a pink boa around his neck. What the fuck did they do? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I'm not sure if I would personally put Superman 3 at the bottom of this list, but I definitely agree with your arguments there. Like, it's it's not a movie I'm going to fight for any higher. Okay. That's for damn sure. All right. Then let's look at number 16. Batman Forever from 1995. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Also the third Batman. Batman and Robin is surprisingly high on this list. That's all I'm going to say. That's that's a frightening thing to say, just, but okay. You'll see. There are a lot of bad movies. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. As anyway. I'm, like, I just had to remember, like, there are more movies that we're talking about that I'm thinking that we're going to talk about. Yeah. Look, here's the thing. Batman and Superman, their original, like, four-film series follow very similar trajectories yes. to me. 
in that I know the fourth is the most reviled, but I hate the third more. Okay, and that's yeah. the same with these two, because we're going to talk about Batman and Robin in a minute. Batman and Robin is an utter failure of a movie. Mm-hmm. But it's an utter failure of a movie that at least chose a direction and went with it. And they didn't do it well, but they chose a fucking direction. With Batman Forever, I don't think anyone knew what they were doing. I think Batman Forever is a, above all else, commits the sin of being dull. I just remember this movie, I've seen it several times, is boring as shit. Because you <laughs> yeah, have a yeah. pretty boring Batman. I like Val Kilmer. He's not a good Batman. No. He's, not a, he's really not a good Bruce Wayne. You have a really terrible Robin and the just utter mishandling of the entire Dick Grayson Robin origin story. Yeah. You have... A set of villains in Jim Carrey as the Riddler who is trying way too hard in a role that gives him way too little. Mm-hmm. And Tommy Lee Jones, fresh off the fright, fresh off the fugitive. <laughs> That's what he was off. The fugitive, one of his best performances, one of the great action movies of the 90s, one of the great kind of antagonists of the 90s. And then he's playing Two-Face, just the worst version of Two-Face imaginable. Yeah. And amidst all of this, the model for these characters was already in place with the animated series, which had been running for years. Right, Mask yeah. of the Phantasm was already out, and they're not taking their clues. Joel Schumacher cannot direct his way out of a paper fucking bag, but you know what? He directed Batman and Robin better than he directed this. <laughs> if you look at the tonal whiplash between what the Riddler is doing and then where they try to connect that thematically to Batman, and this is the movie where they do the whole thing about him being scared of bats, and that's where they bring it in in the original series. Right. Those two things should not be in the same movie. Yeah. You don't see Adam West like having deep philosophical conversations in his movie. <laughs> yeah, it's like he does, he's not sitting in his dad's chair like in Batman Year One. It's like, I will become the bat. Like, listen to me, father. I will go out and I will fight crime. Yeah. But that's what they try to do in Batman Forever. And I just think it is crass. And and also, again, Batman, I don't really like the first Batman movie, but I love Batman Returns. Huh. And going from that to Batman Forever, yeah. I mean, something where you have, whether you like Batman Returns or not, that was Tim Burton making an artistic statement and yeah. frankly doing something that superhero movies would take a really long time to get back to, which is the auteur statement as superhero movie. And then you get Batman Forever. Do I need to say more than that? I mean, I, w- I will definitely say this for putting these two movies at the bottom of the list, is that I have seen all four of the Superman movies and the Bat- those Batman movies from that era, and I can remember very clear things about Superman 4. I can remember very clear things about Batman and Robin. I am struggling so hard to remember anything about Superman 3 or Batman, for- Batman Forever. So you're probably right about putting them at the bottom of this list. That's that's my logic. Yeah. Because number 15 is Superman 4, The Quest for Peace from 1987. Let's talk about this Here's the thing. Superman 4 has a ton of things wrong with it. It probably (laughs) has more things wrong with it than Superman 3. It has the weird politics. It has a really hackneyed idea to try to do the entire can you read my mind scene again with Lois. It has the... Bringing back Gene Hackman to beat the dead horse of Lex Luthor again mm-hmm. and, and not having anything to do in that part. And it has Nuclear Man, Nuclear Man who is just an epic miscalculation. I yeah, will, like that incredibly awkward fight scene on the moon between yes. Superman and Nuclear Man that's sort of I, infamous. I will say this, though. I think Superman 4 has a heart to it and an intent sure, that Superman yeah. 3 does not have. Now, mm-hmm. heart and intent do not always mean you make a good movie. No. But... If you look at the history of this, Christopher Reeve only came back if they if he he said I will do Superman 4 if you let me come up with the story and try to do something that will feel important to the world and he wanted to say something about nukes. Now, from the point of having that really noble intent, yeah. to the time the movie came out, things went wrong. Yeah. And I get that. But I do think you watch this movie and it's bad, but it's bad in a mildly charming way because it does look like the people in the movie 
are trying. Yeah. And I think if you look at Superman 3, there is no effort being put into that. They are... I mean, Christopher Reeves is always putting in the effort. He's a good dude. But... There's no effort to be put in. In this yeah, one, yeah, it does yeah. feel like the people want to be there to try and do something with this. It's their last gasp. They failed, but I at least feel like it's a swing and a miss. Yeah. And I don't think they even took the swing on Superman 3 or Batman Forever. Yeah, yeah. So that's my conclusion. Now, let's make fun of the nuclear analogy. Yeah, like, so, like, remember, like, Superman 4 comes out. It's maybe not quite the height of the Cold War. You're it's a little bit over the hump, but it's like, it's still, you're, like, you're deep in the willingness of the Cold War, right? Yeah. And so, obviously, like, nuclear weapons, nuclear deterrence, mutually assured destruction, these are things, commonplace objects of discussion every day. Well, remember, I mean, you're 1987, you've got Reagan's Star Wars program, yeah. you have the escalation of, really, it was uh, rhetoric more than anything else, but you have, you know, the evil empire speech and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So it feels like, even though the pressure cooker was probably more real in the 60s, it might be felt more intensely in the end of the 80s. Yeah, and so it's... And it's it like, hey, like we've talked about basically last year, you know, like the, a lot of the Metal Gear Solid games. The Metal Gear Solid games are very interested in talking about nuclear deterrence and, and nuclear weapons and stuff like that. And they're like amateurish and silly in how they talk about them. But at least like there is a sense of like an actual grasp of the, the politics and the reason behind the state of the world in during the Cold War. Superman 4 is like... Superman takes all the nuclear weapons on planet Earth and throws them into the sun, which is the most like authoritative, like authoritarian, like fascist fucking thing Superman could possibly do in the guise of like saving the world from the Cold War. It's like you're actually just like like throwing massive piles of fuel on the fire and like domineering over the human race. Which is the last thing that Superman... That's the thing that Superman for the evil Superman from the alternate universe does right after he kills President Lex Luthor is he throws all the nuclear weapons into the sun. I mean, it is exactly on the nose what Alan Moore was writing about in Watchmen at the same time. It's Dr. Dr. Manhattan. Manhattan. Yes, exactly. That is 100% right. But this is why I kind of find Superman 4 mildly charming is that it has that chipper naivete to it. Yeah. Like... They're, they, like if we just if we just disarm everyone, the world will be safe and perfect. Like it's way more complex than like, that, Superman. It's stupid, but it's at least stupidity done with a smile and a and a spring in its step. Yeah, with, you know? with good intention. <laughs> but God, it's it's so really silly. God, <laughs> yes. Also, Superman Four is the cheapest looking superhero movie <laughs> yeah, ever, the, and that's mostly the thing that actually feels to me like the reason why it's really at the bottom of this list is it just feels like. They gave Christopher Reeve like five dollars and was like, "Here, like hire a cast and a crew and like buy cameras and equipment and buy some, make some sets. We're not helping you make this movie. Just make the movie on your own because you're Superman. You could just do it, right?" Yeah. <sighs> not a not a good day for Superman, but I would argue not his absolute worst. <laughs> sure, yeah. There's there have been dark periods in Superman's history, and there may be dark periods to come. <laughs> this is true. All right, number five, fourteen. Is Batman and Robin. Again, I'm surprised how relatively high this got on the list. Yeah. But I will say this. Especially after reviewing some of the Adam West stuff for this project, Batman and Robin took a swing. It was try they decided on a goal, we're gonna try to do the Adam West thing. We're gonna try to do 60s Batman in the 90s as like a kid's fun thing. And the problem, they fundamentally misunderstood everything that made 60s Batman. Yeah. Fundamentally, they don't get any of it. No. But they took a swing, 
They missed hard. The bat came back around and hit them in the head, and they got a fucking concussion. Yeah. They killed the franchise so hard. It took, you know, Christopher Nolan, you know, uh, pulling this up by his bootstraps to get this franchise alive again in Batman Begins. And that was 10 years later at that point. I mean, Batman and Robin is. For Batman, like, the most marketable superhero, like, imaginable. But within all of that, as many things go wrong in Batman and Robin, and I don't know if I need to list them for you, you've got George Clooney being the worst Batman ever. <laughs> that was a miscast. You've got Robin becoming even more annoying. Yeah. You have the most just sexist and fucked up version of Batgirl ever. Yeah. You have a weird thing where Alfred starts dying and they have to do that. <laughs> right. You have Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Mr. Freeze, which kind of works in some ways until you realize they're trying to do the episode from the animated series yeah, yeah. and do the Paul Dini story he wrote. Yeah. And nope, you guys aren't talented enough for that. And it's like, that's the, like you can have ridiculous, silly, over-the-top Mr. Freeze and you can cast Arnold Schwarzenegger for that or you can have like the dark, tragic, just like the most sad Batman villain ever, Mr. Freeze, from the, the cartoon that later came into the comic books. But you do not ever, ever even think about casting fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger for that Mr. Freeze. Everything is wrong about that casting. You have Uma Thurman as Poison Ivy. I think it's the best part of the movie, but I'll talk about that in a second. Then you have Bane, who is in no way resembles Bane in any way, shape, or form. The Tom Hardy Bane is way closer, if you want to say, like, actually actually look at the comics, because he's, you know, intelligent and he has this certain plan and all this. Um, no, the Bane in this is a uh, Lucha Libre, and it does not make sense. Yeah. But, all that being said, I think because they swung for the fences, and they tried to do something crazy, there are moments of real entertainment in Batman and Robin. Some of them are ironic entertainment, but some of them are less ironic. I really do think Uma Thurman knows what movie she's in in this. Sure, yeah. yeah and she's I, over the top. I mean, but she is exactly. perfectly in that model of the villains from, like, the, the 60s Batman show. I don't, sure, think, she's, yeah, yeah. I don't think she's necessarily up to that level because she doesn't have, like, the good writing to go along with it. But I think she knows that line of campy and silly to walk while still being a villain. And I yeah. think she has some good moments. I think Arnold Schwarzenegger gives it his all. And there are some very funny scenes with Mr. Freeze. <laughs> yeah. Even if a lot of them are awkward where he's, you know, crying for his wife. And then he's watching the, you know, um, the, the, like, cartoons from the 50s. Of the Christmas celebrations, and yeah. he's singing along with them and shit. Uh, this movie is so identity challenged, and yet there are moments that kind of shine through. It is also the bottom of the barrel of studios just trying to market toys and shit like that. Yeah, it also feels like this is the movie where the the curse of superhero movies really originates of studios stuffing in villain after villain after villain into your superhero movie, and then just like killing it and yeah. weighing it down until it like can't hold itself up anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but here's the thing. Of these, these are the four worst. Like, clearly, like, am I right? right? These are the four worst. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Okay. Yes, in my experience, these yes. are some of the four worst superhero movies ever made. Yes. And here's the thing. Gun, this is how I rank them. Gun to my head. If I had to watch one of them in completion, doing nothing else, I would watch Batman and Robin because if nothing else, I'm going to laugh at it. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but I'm going to laugh at it. And I cannot say that for Superman 3. I no. definitely can't say that for Batman Forever. I can say that a little bit about Superman 4. But Superman 4 also just makes me sad because they ruined something great. Yeah. Batman and Robin, the series was fucking dead. At that yeah, point. it was I like, mean, there's no coming back. And it's like, because the, the thing that's sad about Superman 4 is that Christopher Reeve is so amazing as Superman. Yes. Like, that can, and we will talk about that a lot when we talk about Superman the motion picture, whenever that comes up on your yes. list later. But 
but yeah, like he was so good and it was so tragic that's like that that franchise had so much potential with him at the helm, where it's like as soon as Michael Keaton, this Michael Keaton was good as Batman and Batman and Batman Returns, but wasn't a, like it wasn't. He was no Christopher Reeve, you know. No. And once, but then even then, once he left, it was like, well, fuck. Like you're fucked. How do you continue your franchise when the star character leaves the fucking series? Like you yeah. can't do that. It's insane that they ever decided to keep making movies in the first place without taking a little break. Well, yeah, I mean, Tim Burton and Michael Keaton left at the same time, and they decided to go for Joel Schumacher and Val Kilmer. What are you thinking? Yeah. I, what are you thinking? Especially with, like, this popular TV show on that was inspired by the Burton stuff. Yeah. That has its own voice, and it's very popular and acclaimed. They, I mean, Warner Brothers fucked this hard. Yeah, they, they misread the direction of the culture, like, yes. catastrophically. Like, even if they had a, done a good job with, like, what you're saying with Batman and Robin, of emulating a lot of that stuff about the 60s Batman stuff... Then it would be like an interesting movie to go back to years later and say it's like, oh, this was actually a movie. This was pretty good. We just couldn't see it at the time. But like at the time, if they had tried to execute on the super campy Batman and had done well, like that movie still would have bombed horribly. And we are going to talk about a movie later on this list that I think was miscalculated for the time, but is much better than we remember. Yeah. And and maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. But this is not one of those cases. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, those are the bottom four. I will say those were the four hardest to rank. Yeah, I can see that. I think I personally, after these conversations, I would basically keep it the same. I would maybe actually move Superman 4 above Batman and Robin. Like, there's something I feel strangely compelled to watch Superman 4 right now in a way I was not expecting going into this conversation. I don't ever want to watch Batman and Robin again. No, I get it. Yeah. That movie, I mean, at least that movie does have an insanity to it that that puts it above the other two at the bottom. But, like, Superman 4 does, like, even it has a tragic heart in the yes. center of it that is strangely alluring. Yeah, but a tough, tough thing to do. But anyway. Yeah. Do not interview this, this job. It's okay. Let's move on to number 13. If you have heard of this one, give yourself a big pat on the back. This is Superman and the Mole Men from 1951. I'm really excited to hear you talk about this movie. I've seen nothing from it. Not one second of footage. This is the oldest film on our list. This is uh, this was basically a backdoor cinematic pilot for a series of TV episodes that George Reeve, not no relation to Christopher yeah. Reeves. Strange coincidence. But the first cinematic Superman, uh, live action Superman, they made this one hour film that played in theaters as kind of a way to gauge interest in a possible TV series and just to try it out. And then they made that series, which is fairly famous. It had a big following at the time. I'm sure everyone's seen clips of it where, you know, you don't see Superman fly, but you see him jump in through the window and stuff. It was their first attempt to do that, and Superman and the Mole Men was the beginning of that. And I think if you have any interest in Superman or comic book movies, you should see this. Hmm. It's kind of... I don't know if it's a good movie. It's definitely an interesting one, and it's got some good things about it. Um... So it's like I said, made in 1951, you've got George Reeve. It, it, you also see just a different window on Superman in that you know, this is a very different era. You really yeah, only I mean, have... Superman is a character who has changed dramatically over yeah. history. Yeah. And you know, this, is, this feels like an episode of Star Trek. It's, or something like some... This was 50s, but feels like some kind of 60s yeah. sci-fi show or serial. Like Twilight Zone, Star Trek. Outer Limits. Outer Limits, something like that. Because the basic plot is you have Clark Kent... Uh, it's an inspiring journalist, Clark Kent, yeah. and his friend Lois Lane. They go to a small town. No, where no, no. A- Lois Lane is his girlfriend. His pal, his friend, is is Jimmy Olsen. Right. As we all know. <laughs> his colleague, Lois yeah, Lane. Exactly. Um, Superman's go- colleague, Lois Lane, was yes. not a very successful comic book <laughs> line in the 50s. Yes. No, they go to a, uh, uh, a little town where there's sort of some mining incidents. 
And they basically, they, these mole men come up from the earth. They're just little people in makeup. And, I have uh, read the first issue of Fantastic Four. I know who the mole men are. Yes. And uh, the mole men basically are good guys. They're not doing anything wrong, but there's this kind of dust up in the town where uh, the town people get very afraid of the mole men and Superman is sort of there to just kind of calm things down. I actually thought about putting this movie substantially higher and I think I really like the sound of that premise. It's really tough to know where to rank this. It is by far the most different of any of these. I mean, you're talking the next oldest movie is 1966. So this is a good 15 years earlier than anything else on the list. Mm -hmm. So it's really tough to compare it. It's only an hour long. It feels like a good TV episode. Yeah. And some things are very awkward about it, you know. Um, obviously, the effects are... There's not much you can do about it. I think they find some good workarounds. Like when Superman first flies, we just, he jumps out of frame. Then they do this thing where the camera is just pointed at the ground, moving along. So you see, like, from his POV. Nice. And then he yeah. lands. I actually think it's pretty elegant. But how do you compare that to Man of Steel, for yeah, instance? Right? I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, where they just go full anime with it. Right. It's, it's really tough to know what to do. But um, I think there's some interesting stuff. Like... This is the one of the only Superman movies where I would say we have an active Clark Kent, where he is a journalist, he's confident, he's capable, he's just an upstanding 50s guy. He reminds me of uh, Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, frankly. And, that, that is a good characterization for Clark Kent. Yeah, and that it's is a, what you want to go for with that It's character. an interesting dynamic. He's not bumbling at all. And because it's sort of built on this moral issue, it's like that kind of simple sci-fi mystery on this small scale. So Superman appears about 25 minutes in. It's an awful costume. It looks like pajamas. We've come a very long way. But what you have is is interesting, where he is there not to exert his power, but to be the big blue Boy Scout. And to right. say, these townspeople are getting their knives and pitchforks and guns. The first thing Superman does is bend a shotgun in half that a guy points at him. It's nice. great. That's a very and Superman he, thing. And he's, he's trying to instill morals in these people, to say... I could end all of this in a second. I could, I could no. kill every motherfucking last one of you. Yes, he could do that. But he's just trying to get everyone to realize what's going on. So I really like that. And I actually think George Reeve is really good in this. He uh, does a very good job of differentiating between Clark and Superman, where you see the differences. But you see Clark is the guy who people maybe see as a businessman, a journalist, but Superman is this role model. Yeah. You know? and he's I think, an icon. Right. And the people initially listen to him because he has that voice and he uses it for good. I think it's actually it's a very good Superman story for that reason. It's not about superheroics. It's not about special effects. It's not about punching the bad guy. No. But I think the heart of Superman has never been those things, even though he yeah. is the most powerful superhero. And so on that level, I think it's pretty good. And uh, there is a scene in the middle of this I have to talk about, though, where all the townies go after the mole men and decide to try to kill them. And Superman is saving one, but then the, the townies are off doing something else with the other mole man. And right. the mole man is trapped in this little uh, like wooden hut. And they start burning the hut. Oh, the, the mole man lives, don't worry. Okay. He gets out. But the burning of the mole man sequence and his escape is the longest sequence in film history. <laughs> I know the movie's only 58 minutes and it's not possible, but I stand by that statement. It is the longest scene I've ever seen in anything. Having seen a lot of old Doctor Who episodes, I think I know the phenomenon you were talking about. I mean, for the whole time, you're just waiting for Superman to come and blow the fire out or something. But no, it never happens. It's just these three racist hicks trying to burn a mole man alive and the mole man escaping on his own. It's really sad. (laughs) That poor mole man. Yeah, like old old padding is amazing to see. Like like old like filmed media had a tendency to like pick strange scenes that they just decided to pad out for a very long amount of time. You're like, yep. why are you still what cut away? Why are you still doing this? Just cut away. Why the fuck is this still like gone? Yep. And uh 
I've got to get political again for a second here. Okay, go ahead. All I could think of watching these townies, because, again, the whole thing is the moment are different, so they're scared of them. All I could think of is if this were 2016, they would all be Donald Trump supporters. Yeah. And that's the thing is down to the sheriff comes out and tries to impose some law and order like, let's calm down. And they just punch the dude and leave, which has literally happened at Trump rallies. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and it's the thing, like, seriously, if you want to think of it in that, like, Trump modern Republican parable, it works perfectly because there's a scene where Superman comes in and they all have guns. He says, obviously, none of you can be trusted with guns. So I'm going to take them away from you. Yeah. Throw them into the sun. Superman is pro-gun control, motherfuckers. Suck it. Yeah. And it's actually, it's honestly played a lot better than like the nuclear thing yeah. because it makes sense. Superman kind of has to do it or they're going to hurt each other. Yeah. Like, yeah. The disarming a group of like enraged individuals is much different than disarming a series of nations. That the whole planet. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the end, the bullmen fucking irradiate the leader of the townies. <laughs> and then Superman steps in in front of the radiation machine and does the Superman pose and like takes the radiation. Badass. This is a really good movie. Like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch this it's, tonight. And, and I wanted to tell you this. If, if you have, the Superman box set that came out in 2006. It's one of my favorite DVD sets I've ever owned. And I've never even replaced any of those movies on Blu-ray because I just love that DVD set. It's like that big tin. Yeah. It's a I think 16 discs or something. The first four discs are the Superman the movie set, so you might have those individually. But disc four has this movie. So that's where you can find it. It's not in great shape like it is a yeah, movie from obviously. the 50s that was not very restored. We should looks, be happy that it exists at all. Yes. It looks fine. It sounds fine. And it's a pretty good movie. Uh, me putting it at 13, I, I think everything from 13 on is good to good to great. Like, I don't think any of these worth are... Worth watching. Worth watching. Yeah. I'm not saying any of these are bad. I could very easily make the argument that this is better than several of the next ones we're going to talk about. But again, it's new to me. Yeah. I wasn't... It's so different. It's, and, it's very dated, obviously. Yeah. So, I, I don't want to say, you know, it's 13 that makes it bad. It's really interesting. It's just not one that I think most people would watch today and get much out of. But I think if you know that period, you like things like Star Trek, The Twilight Zone, um, even stuff like War of the Worlds, like movies from that period. Yeah. It looks like those. Um, there's something worthwhile here. It's a, cool. it's a good Superman movie. Look, it is better than at least two other Superman movies. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just a sad thing to say, but a necessary thing to say. Yeah. And, you know, an observation I wanted to make. I wanted to make this at the beginning, but I forgot. A kind of thing I realized looking at this whole series of the movies is that Batman movies are generally better than Superman movies. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. On but, average. But there have been way more good castings of Superman than Batman. Like, yes. I think every time they've cast Superman in a live-action movie, they fucking nailed it. Yeah. And I don't know how they've done it all that times. But, like, George Reeves is great. Christopher Reeves is great. Brandon Ruth is fucking great. Henry Cavill is really good. Yeah. They're all great Supermen. But Superman has all the bad movies. But yeah, then Batman, yeah. I don't think there's a great live-action Batman. I think Adam West actually is the one I would point to. Sure, yeah. Even though it's a very different Batman. Yeah. But he's perfect. Then you have Michael Keaton, who I think does very well with what he's given. You have Christian Bale, who I think is really good at Bruce Wayne, not so much as the Batman. Yeah. And then Val Kilmer and George Clooney, who are wet farts. Yeah. So... It's just that, like, today, George Clooney in a good Batman movie, I think he could do a pretty good job. It's it's sad that that we blew that. You it's know? sad we blew that because I think he could do the Adam West thing really well if he yeah. knew what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he'd be a good, very different kind of Batman. Yeah. Anyway, but let's move on. Missed opportunity. We're going to talk about another Batman movie now. Number twelve is Batman from nineteen eighty nine. Okay, yeah, the, the Tim Burton, Burton movie, the original Tim Burton. Yeah, so the one just called. There are two movies on this list just called Batman. Yeah, this is the Tim Burton nineteen eighty nine with Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, and. Some of you would probably put this higher. I probably wouldn't. I don't like this movie. And I'm trying to balance those things out. I've never really liked this movie. 
I think it does some things really well. I do like Michael Keaton's Batman a lot. I think he has a I think he has a great Bruce Wayne, yeah. and that he gets that thing that honestly I think Adam West set the template for, where you have someone where you can believe he is the eligible bachelor, the respected member of the community, but also a little weird. Like he's yeah, a little yeah. off. He's, there's something about him that's a little crazy when he like smacks that fucking yeah. statue on the wall in that one scene. Yep. And then when he gets in the suit, I think he's a very intimidating Batman. He's got the that's the model for how you should do the Bat voice. Yeah. That or Kevin Conroy, where he doesn't change his voice. He just inflects in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's really good, and I wish Christian Bale had learned from that. <laughs> yeah. uh, or more missed opportunities. That's honestly that's probably not Christian Bale's choice. So we, we blame yeah. him for that. That was probably he was not the only one involved in that choice. No. <laughs> but anyway, uh, but I think like if you go back to this movie, it feels, in all honesty, more dated than Superman in the Moment to me huh. because it just like. And honestly, Tim Burton had no model to go off with this one. And you have to give it you know, props for that of really trying something new. Because there was Superman the movie, but that's a totally different superhero. There was no dark superhero movie. Yeah. And like a grounded, realistic superhero movie. And he tried to do that here. But I think you look at it like the pace is just slow as molasses, but not in a good way. You have scenes that kind of work in fits and starts. You have subplots that go... No, I always forget... That there's a whole subplot, not just with the uh, Vicky Vale, but with her friend Knox, who's right, like a yeah. major character in this movie. Yeah. And I forget about that every time because shouldn't be there. Um, you have that, I think the relationship between Vicky Vale and Bruce Wayne is very awkward in this movie and not particularly well handled. Surprised Tim Burton doesn't do romance well. Yeah. Um, unless it's super fucked up because the one in Batman Returns is great. Hey, um, Jonathan, get surprised. Batman doesn't do romance very well. Like, that, like, he doesn't matter about the movie. Mask of the Phantasm coming up. Yeah, that's the one time. Literally, like, I'm not talking about Batman movies. I'm talking about every Batman thing I have ever seen. Batman Mask of the Phantasm is the one time I've ever seen Batman romance ever done, I would say, well. Yeah, good good point. It's done funny in the Adam West movie, but we'll talk about that. Um, No, and, and it... I think so. That's awkward. The bat suit is so awful in this movie. He can't move in it. Like, yeah. Not just his head. He can't move. Yeah, like, he like rotates his entire body. He looks yeah. like a Resident Evil character. Like yes. he's like working with tank controls in real life somehow. I mean, Batman basically is in stills when he's in action scenes in this movie. Yeah. There's a pretty good scene in the Batmobile, but other than that, he can't do any fighting. He can't do... And I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Like in Superman and the Mole Man, the fact that you can't show Superman pl- flying, what they do is they make a story where it doesn't matter. Yeah. I don't think that's what this movie is, and I think there are, the action sequences are really, really awkward and kind of disconcerting because of that. Yeah. Uh, and you see how they learn, because I do think Batman Returns is a better movie in every respect, in, in how they, they learn from that. Um, I love the design of this movie. This is one of the best designed superhero movies ever. Their Gotham is iconic and put to great use in the animated yeah. series. The music by uh, Danny Elfman is some of the best superhero music ever composed. And then I think, so all of that's good. I think what I'm saying is bad and what is good is kind of inarguable. I think people would generally agree with me on these things. Yeah, yeah. I think the dividing line comes down to how you feel about Jack Nicholson as the Joker. Okay, because I love Jack Nicholson's Joker. I'm going to say that right now. Don't care for it. You're I don't person. hate him. I just think I compare him to every other Joker. He's basically doing a Cesar Romero riff and not a particularly inspired one. I think it's Jack Nicholson phoning it in pretty hard and just being Jack Nicholson. And I don't find it that interesting. I, I think... He's okay. I, I don't I don't think they even... Basically, it's a Joker movie more than it is a Batman movie. Yeah. And I don't think they ever really find any kind of thematic thing to tie those characters together. They don't find much of a plot to hang this all on. And the end of the... I mean, the climax of this movie is Batman chasing... Uh, not chasing. He's walking slowly up a flight of stairs as the Joker walks slowly up a flight of stairs. And then he fucking kills the Joker. Yeah. So... 
it's a, it's a really rough climax. And Tim Burton will be the first to say he doesn't like this movie because there wasn't necessarily studio interference, but there wasn't a lot of studio support. And, like, they had no pre-production time for that ending. So, like, there's a famous story where Jack Nicholson is walking up the stairs. He turns around to Tim Burton and says, what do I do when I hit the top of the stairs? And Tim Burton said, we'll figure it out when we get there. <laughs> I mean, that's how the end of this movie was constructed. I think it was, this movie is incredibly important in superhero film history. But to me... And I did revisit this one pretty recently, so I'm not just going off memory on yeah. this. And I have – there are things I love about this movie. There are things that don't work. I think if you love Jack Nicholson, you might put it higher. I just think I can make arguments for the next 11 movies where I think there are more things to like about them. And that's why it is where it is. Okay, yeah. Like I haven't seen this movie since I was in high school. Like I haven't seen any of these movies since I was in high school or earlier other than Superman The Motion Picture I've seen more recently. But – yeah, like, like I, I just think it is that, like, I enjoy Jack Nicholson's performance as a Joker. Like, I don't necessarily, I'm not going to make an argument about the movies, like, has some, like, very strong thematic argument to make about Batman or the Joker, because I don't think it does. I think you're right about that. But I do think it's, it's fun. And I do, I, I mean, honestly, the thing about the movie that's just the best part, as you said, is the set design and everything about just the look of the movie is so sort of enthralling to me. Like, it's got such a mood to it that that elevates it a lot for me. Yeah, and I get that. And I, uh, spoiler, Batman Returns is significantly higher on this list for me. I love that movie, and I think it does everything the first Batman does well, and then gets all the other stuff in line. So that's why I felt okay putting this one lower, because I think there's one that represents that better higher on the list. Sure. But we'll get to that one. That's an yeah. interesting one to talk about. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to number, I don't even remember where I am at this point. Okay, number was, number 11 yeah. is... I don't, I don't mean numbers. I don't remember what I ranked past this point. Because we're into that middle area where... Anyway, number 11 is Superman 2, the original theatrical version. We're also okay. ranking the Richard Donner cut. That's later. Okay. The Superman 2 from 1980, the one directed by Richard Leister, uh, sequel to Superman the Motion Picture. If you know the history, I mean, I love that box set because you get to learn all like the documentaries about the yeah. history of these, the making of these movies, which was fascinating. But Richard Donner was they, the intention was they shot Superman one and two at the same time, and then would release them a couple months apart. Which the way they were way ahead of the curve on that because yeah. that became standard at a certain point. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I mean, that's basically like the Harry Potter Twilight model yeah. of, of doing that. Um, but anyway, so. But during production, Richard Donner got fired. Superman 2, he had shot a good chunk of, but not all of. They brought in Richard Leister. They had him reshoot up to the point where he had shot 70% of the movie so they could take Richard Donner's name off it entirely. And that was because then they didn't have to pay Richard Donner because right. the Salkinds were fucking cheap-ass bastards. And there is a lot of history in comic books of very good, talented, creative people getting fucking shafted by, yes. by their studios or their production studios. So the result was Superman 2, which is sort of a haphazard movie in some ways. You have the only Richard Donner scenes that survived are the Gene Hackman scenes because Gene Hackman refused to come back. He thought Richard Donner got a raw deal and he walked out with him. So all, Gene Hackman is a real cool dude. Yep. So all the Gene Hackman scenes or scenes with Gene Hackman in them are shot by Richard Donner. And I think you actually can kind of feel that because yeah. he has a really good... Like, Richard Donner got Lex Luthor mm -hmm. in a way that was... And Gene Hackman, obviously, too. Yeah. Uh, and I think Gene Hackman's interactions with Zod in this are particularly good. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have all of that. And then everything else Richard Leister reshot. So I think there's some weird things like... I kind of like the opening of this movie where there's the Paris scene where there's this bomb in an elevator and Superman's trying to stop that. Yeah. That's all kind of interesting, but it's like a 30-minute prologue, and the movie doesn't start until after that's over, because that's when they get broken out of the Phantom Zone, even though they right. set that up at the end of Superman 1. And the Richard Donner cut just gets straight to it, because yeah. Superman, I think, flings a missile into space. He does that a lot in these movies. Yeah. 
Anyway. I mean, where else are you going to put a fucking missile? Like, you know. Nowhere on Earth. There's Good. only one other place to put it if it's not on Earth. Yeah. That's yeah, space. Good point. So we have that. And, uh, you know, Superman 2 has some very famous things that are uh, inarguably great. I mean, you have some of the best Christopher Reeves material as he tries to figure out how much of a human versus a superhero he wants to be yeah. with his relationship with Lois. Margot Kidder is great. Their chemistry is off the charts. And you've got Terrence Stamp as Zod. He's fantastic. I think one of the flaws in the movie is they make a lot of the Zod stuff too jokey and hokey. Yeah. Where Terrence Stamp, you know, he's great. Neil before Zod is iconic for a reason. Yeah. Um, but some of that doesn't fully work. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, but, yeah. I mean, you, you've got Terrence Stamp. You've got Margot Kidder. You've got Christopher Reeves. You've got the makings of a pretty good movie. There's a lot of really good stuff in Superman 2. I think there are also... If you go back and look at it, some flaws to the film, which is unfortunate. But this was one of the first superhero sequels, and overall, it's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, like, I don't have super strong memories of Superman 2. Like, I've seen both of the cuts, and I really, like, don't feel particularly strongly about either one of them. But, but like, everything you've said, I basically agree with. Like, obviously, Terrence Stamp is odd is awesome. Like, all the, like... All the characters from the first movie are back in like really good. Like like all the actors are still doing really good, but it never has the the power to me that the first movie has. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. So that's where Superman two lands. Well, what is my number ten? My number ten is The Dark Knight Rises. No, okay, two thousand twelve. Yeah. Uh, this was another one really hard to rank because I yeah. think on one level, The Dark Knight Rises is one of the most astonishing technical achievements in film history. If you sure, look at the yeah. cinematography. The effects look flawless. It is a massive production in some of the just epic scale of it. If you saw it on IMAX, it's got about 50 minutes of IMAX footage, and holy shit, every second of it is jaw-dropping. And it's got one of the great superhero movie scenes, which is the fight between Bane and Batman, which they did perfect. Like, you couldn't have done that scene better. They nailed it. The rest of the movie, not so much. And I have a kind of a complicated history with this movie where I saw it once... Was kind of confused by it. So I, again, really liked a lot of it. Because there are a lot of things to like about yes, it. Yes, yeah. And then I saw it a third time a couple years later. I've only ever seen this movie in theaters. I've never watched it on like DVD or anything. Uh, but I saw a theatrical right. screening of it at a couple uh, last year. They did a revival of all of Christopher Nolan's movies at the Denver Film Center. And I was struck by, again, what a technical achievement it is. This was the last movie Wally Feister shot as a cinematographer before he moved on to directing. Huh. Um, and good God, if that's the last one he does, it's just the cinematography is next level stuff. It is incredible. Yeah. And I think the performances by everybody is great. Tom Hardy as Bane. It's a, I think it's such a fascinating performance. And some things about it don't fully work, but I think that's more the story than the character. I really like that character and that performance. Anne I Hath- mean, anything you're going to say about it, at least he's very enthralling. Yes, he is. I mean, you have Anne Hathaway as Catwoman. Great version of Catwoman in live action. More on the kind of almost animated series side. And I really like that. I don't think it's perfectly done, again, because the story gets in the way, but I think she's really good. She is the only woman in the franchise who has chemistry with Christian Bale, so yeah. we finally figured that out. And even that's not like, it's not extraordinary no. chemistry, but no, there is something there. There's something it's there. No, fucking um, whoever was in the other two movies, I can't even remember. Maggie Gyllenhaal and, and Katie, Katie Holmes. Holmes. There that's we go. That's right. Okay. Um, Whatever happened to that character? Uh, died in the uh, in Oh, Night. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I never moment. cared about her. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. You care about no her. No matter what actress she was played by, yeah. that character never really did something for me. You only care about her because Bruce cares about her. That's yeah. kind of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, so, yeah, as so that, you've got Morgan Freeman, Mar- Michael Caine, all doing great yeah. work. 
Everyone is top-notch in this movie. Great action sequences, great cinematography, great sets, great atmosphere, great music. All this stuff is good. The script is shit. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad we've come to this point. It'll be, it'll be interesting to re-listen to our podcast because I feel like we I, don't remember, I don't remember exactly what my opinion was on the movie when we recorded that. You were very... I feel you, like I was more down it. on it than you, though. You were more down on it. You liked it overall. Like You yeah. thought it was a good movie. But you thought it had a lot of problems. I agreed with some of those problems. Over time, I think... It is yeah, such... It's soured it's, for me. It's, it's soured for me, too. And the thing is, it's tough. When you saw it the first time, the rose-colored glasses were strong, in part because it is such an overwhelming technical achievement. Yeah. It is coming off... There are parts off, of it that are, like, extraordinary, for sure. Yeah. It's coming off the heels of The Dark Knight. It's hard not to just want to like it. But, I mean, my God, this movie has no clue what it wants to say. It is one of the most thematically muddled films I've ever seen. And, you know, I think it's a good movie because at least they're fucking reaching for something. Like, they're not just saying Batman's going to punch people, you know? They're they're trying, but I don't think they really know what they're trying to do. They kind of tried to tap into the um, Occupy Wall Street Street zeitgeist. But in a way that made the occupiers seem like fascists, I don't know. But it had it felt like it had no, no idea. idea. Like no. like how like Catwoman and the whole like program that erases you yeah. and like Bane but like like the thing that for me the plot point that makes this movie just like melt is remembering it's like, oh yeah, Talia Al Ghul was actually the villain yes. the entire time. Yeah. Like everything about that plot decision, everything revolving around that is the part where it's like you just didn't do it. You just yeah. couldn't figure out what you really want to do with this film. Yes. And, yeah, no it, no idea what they're doing with that. And the worst part is that the plot is just so messy because there are so many moving parts to get any single thing about it working. Yeah. It takes place over a series of, like, ten months. Yeah. Gotham goes into... Gotham gets becomes, like, a police state run by Bane, and somehow the U.S. doesn't intervene. Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Like. There are some things about this movie that are every bit as ridiculous as Batman and Robin. It's just in a more prestige setting. Yeah, and it feels like like that is especially like in the modern America. Not to get like too political again on this podcast, but there is something that is really like almost Superman four esque in the naivety of like, oh yeah, like he can just take over that city, and the American government and the American military are going to do nothing about it. Like like the the acts of violence like. Committed by officials in the like the police or the government or whatever, like over the past couple of years, has made like that side of it feel like it just doesn't understand the political temperature. No, it, it of did modern America. It did not, and it it's it's not like that long a movie compared to The Dark Knight and some other ones. It's like 160 yeah. minutes. It feels like it's five hours long because everything is so labored. Every plot point takes so long to get started. If it's not a three-act movie, it's like a six-act movie yeah. because you've got the beginning where he's not Batman, then he becomes Batman and hangs out with Catwoman. But yeah, then they, he I forgot they Bane. do that whole like trying to do the Dark Knight Returns thing at the yeah, beginning. That, they that, do that. feels like that doesn't and ever then, pan out. But then he stops being Batman because he's sent into the hole. And then while he's in the hole, Christian Bale is gone for a solid hour of the movie. That's a miscalculation. Yeah, and. And you've got all the stuff in Gotham. Then he comes back. Then he wins. Then he dies. But he's not really dead. Like, it just... It doesn't... And the plot... Like, every plot point is so ludicrous to get to the next plot point. Like, Gary Oldman's uh, Commissioner Gordon has to send every single police officer into the sewers at once so they get stuck there. There's no reason for him to do that at all. But he has to do that so we can get to the next plot point. But the next plot point isn't that good. So it feels like the whole movie was like... They made a list of, we want to do these things in the movie. Then they took a weekend and hashed, banged out a draft yeah. and then had no time to revise that. It is just very undisciplined as a script. And it is an exa- I think it's a terrible script. Like, it is a piece of shit screenplay. Mm-hmm. 
But it, it's an example in how you can have a screenplay that's really bad and then everything else can be so good that you somehow even it out in the middle sure, somewhere. Yeah. Because one side of it is awful and then everything else is pretty damn good. But that awful side really does drag it down at times. And it, I am having the hardest time right now trying to remember... Is there actually a scene at the end of Dark Knight Rises where they take the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character and make a joke about the name Robin? Or did I... Okay, so that does... I couldn't remember if I made that up as a joke or if that was a scene that actually happened in the movie. I'll I'll tell you what it is. It's like his middle name? No, his name is John Blake. Okay. And someone says, oh, your middle name is John. Why don't you ever use your first name? It's beautiful. And he says... Oh, I, I don't really, you know. And she says, "Robin, Robin John Blake." He's like, "Oh, okay." And so you find out his name is Robin. God, it's the worst. <laughs> it, it really tells that I could remember if that was a scene in the movie or not. Yeah, oh. no, that's the end. I, there's the whole thing with that Doctor Pavlov, who is like at the beginning they steal the other dude's blood to put in the dead body, and then they save the doctor so he can build them the nuke. But then they kill him. And but it's the- not a nuke because it's. Actually, just super or Spider-Man two the entire time because it's a nuclear fusion reactor. Something because like that. really, Bane just wants the power of the sun in the palm of his hand. And yet, this is what makes it kind of great. Is there's things you remember about it. The Bane voice is awesome and iconic. Yeah. That yeah. fight is awesome. There's some really Christian Bale. He really tries, and this is the one where I think I have such conflicted feelings about the Christopher Nolan series overall because. Yeah. Spoiler, I hold Batman Begins and especially The Dark Knight in very high regard, but as a trilogy, this is the reason it doesn't hold together because, Mm -hmm. in part, the first movie is a really good Bruce Wayne movie. The second movie, I think, is a pretty good Batman story. The third one is neither a Batman story nor a Bruce Wayne story. He just kind of falls off, and they never let Christian Bale develop what he was really good at. So I think Christian Bale could be the best live-action Batman slash Bruce Wayne, but he, outside of Batman Begins, never really got the chance to develop it. Like Christopher Nolan got sidetracked. And I feel like The Dark Knight Rises is the ultimate side of that. Like, end of the day, I really wish they wouldn't have made it. Like, I'm kind of glad to have it for some reasons. Yeah. But if it were just a duology of Batman Begins the Dark Knight, you've said everything. There's nothing yeah. left to say. Like, this was so clearly Christopher Nolan making it because he felt obligated. I don't think he had anything left to say. And that's not a bad thing. He said a lot in those first two movies. But those first two are kind of a perfect, just two-part story. Yeah. You don't, after Gary Oldman gives his last speech in The Dark Knight, you've put a cap on that. Yeah. And The Dark Knight Rises is a lot of wheel spinning to try to go further. Yeah. It also has, like, a re- I, that stupid ending where it's, like, everything about the way they frame that ending with, like, Batman dies, but he doesn't. And then, like, Alfred goes and sees him. And then Joseph Gordon-Levitt finds the Batcave or whatever and is supposed to... I don't know. It's. I mean, it was like when we talked about a Batman Arkham Knight basically had the same thematic idea on that ending and then did it a billion times better than that yes, movie. absolutely. So, Yeah. I'm very sad that that movie's so low. Bane feels that it should be higher because his voice is very good. <laughs> All right, number nine is hey, it is Dark Knight Rises is the movie with the higher level of Bane. It's yeah, it's true. Anyway, no uh, number nine is Superman two, the Richard Donner cut, nineteen eighty slash two thousand six when it was so Dark Knight Rises in a sweet little Superman two sandwich right there. I felt like I couldn't have the two Superman twos right next to each other. I agree. Yeah. Also, I do think the Richard Donner cut of this is a legitimately better movie. It's, yeah, it definitely is. Um, so here's the thing: if you don't know what the Richard Donner cut is, you can go find it on DVD, Blu-ray, digital. It's been pretty widely disseminated now, but it came out in 2006, the same time as Superman Returns, and the whole idea was Richard Donner was asked to come back. 
He, he did not himself fully supervise this. Other people cut it together, but he kind of put in some input. Yeah. They found all of his footage, including like the Marlon Brando stuff that was cut, right. and recut the movie as close as they could to Richard Donner's original vision. Now, the movie is not... I think if, they, if Richard Donner had actually gotten to make his version of the movie, this would be the best Superman 2 movie, and it would be significantly higher on his, this list. Yeah. But as Richard Donner and everyone involved will tell you, it is compromised. Yeah, it's incomplete. Some, yeah, some pieces of footage don't exist. They had no ending, so they have to reuse the thing where Superman spins the Earth back around again. Yeah. Which was originally intended to be the ending of Superman 2, and they moved it to 1 when they didn't have time to finish 1. Um, which is part of why that feels kind of as out of place yeah. as it is, in addition to being stupid. But yeah, very stupid. It's very we'll stupid. talk about that later. We'll talk about that later. Um, but Superman 2, I think... And there's things like uh, they have to use test footage of Margot Kidder and Christopher Reeves for this one scene. And it's fine, but you can tell they haven't figured out the characters quite yet. Yeah. And it's a very important moment. But what you get is a well-put-together blueprint of what could have been. And it's good. It's really compelling. You see the logic in making the movie like they did. You, they just get right off to the races with they're out of the Phantom Zone in the first scene. And then they're off doing things. And meanwhile, Superman and Lois, they're going to Niagara Falls like right away. All that stuff happens. It just character-wise, theme-wise, it's all so much more centered and focused. There's all these great scenes with these characters that was such a revelation at the time because in 2006 when this came out because, you know, we'd all, we were used to the old Superman 2 and, and what happened with Margot Kidder and Christopher Reeves and that. And now we're getting Richard Donner footage of that again. And their performances are just so much sharper. Yeah. The writing is so much better. I do think it's the superior version of the movie, even though it still feels incomplete and they didn't get to quite finish it. There's so much good stuff in this and it feels like ultimately the superior version of Superman 2. And it's too bad we have two versions of that movie and it never quite got to be what it was, what it yeah, should have been. Yeah, it is it's something where, like, it is at the very least, it is incredibly fascinating in the state it's in from, like, a, a production and, like, film history standpoint and, like... That's always, like, a really fascinating idea of, like, directors taking over, like, other movies halfway through and, like, how, like, because that's where you can really try to dissect, like, what does a director really add to a movie when you can have that, like, direct direct juxtaposition with the same material. But it is, like, it is really tragic that you didn't get the proper sequel to the to Superman the Motion Picture. Well, like, for instance, and, and if you listen to the commentary on the Richard Donner cut disc, it's a really great commentary. It's Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz talking about it. And Richard Donner points out, like, the biggest scenes he never got to shoot was all the final fights with Zod. And, and actually a lot of the scenes with Zod and his cohorts. Yeah. And so those are played much more for laughs than he would have shot them. And he just says, like, yeah, I, that's a gag. I wouldn't have done that as a gag. Or if I did a gag here, it would be in this way or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is kind of, there's a little whiplash when you get to the end. And the fight in New York is mostly a series of gags. And that's not how Richard Donner shoots any of no, the other action. Yeah. So... It's interesting, but it's it's kind of like the greatest DVD bonus feature ever. Mm-hmm. So it's worth seeing. But um, and I think nine. I think I I think that's a good place for it on the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's keep going. Number eight, the most controversial movie on this list by a long shot, Man of Steel from twenty thirteen. Okay, yeah. Um, okay, I did not have time to rewatch Man of Steel entirely, but I did some clips. I looked at it again because it's been a long time since it came out. Or feels like it's been you know three years. Yeah. And obviously there's been a shit ton of controversy around it. You and I have argued about it. Lots of people have argued about it. The atmosphere around the movie was, I think, excessively toxic because it was just a fucking movie at the end of the day. You can probably even agree about that. I don't know. Although, like, 
the argument I would make is that for me it isn't just a movie because of like my relationship to the Superman character. Like I can understand why people would get very heated about it. Like I, I understand why I got heated about it. But when it, but you know, you and I were able to have that conversation without you personally attacking. Well, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, the difference. But that's for anything. Like, so there's probably someone who's called someone a faggot on the internet because they didn't agree with them on Superman and the Mole Men. You know, like that's the internet. <laughs> like, come on. No, I get it. But it, anyway, it was just excessive around the time it came out. But. Man of Steel, this was one of the other ones that's really hard to rank, in part because I think it's a good movie. I don't really think it's a good Superman movie. Yeah, and that's a, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. But let me start with why it has to be semi-high. I do think it's a film that does a lot of things well, that I think you can agree it does well, yeah. that I do think it ignored in the conversation. So I want to go through some of those. Okay. First off, cinematography in this movie is fucking gorgeous. Sure. I always like the way Zack Snyder shoots his movies. I think... I run hot and cold on Zack Snyder. I like some of his movies very much. Sucker Punch is one of the worst movies <laughs> yeah, I've ever seen. Sucker Punch. Um, but I also think he's a guy who swings for the fences and has a sense of voice and tone yeah. and purpose. And I think he brings that to Man of Steel. I think the cinematography, it's, it's textured, it's immersive, it's rich. It's dark, but it's not colorless. And I think it gets, it's more engaging than it gets credit for. Because I don't think the movie is just aping Christopher Nolan stylistically. No, I do no. think on that level it's doing its own thing. And I like the look of the movie. Okay, yeah. I, I don't necessarily like all the design elements. Like, I don't think the suit is perfect. No. But I do like the look of the movie. Uh, I love the Hans Zimmer score. I think it's one of Hans yeah. Zimmer's best scores, which is saying something. It makes you forget about John Williams, and that is no small feat. I think it's got one of the best superhero movie villains ever. It's got... Yeah, Michael, Michael Shannon's General Zod is very, very good. I yes. definitely agree with that. It's a fascinating interpretation of the character. It's driven by this underlying desire to help his people. And he is, you know, suffering in this movie. Yeah. And he's really good. Again, hard to forget about Terrence Stamp. He's really good, though, and makes you forget about that. I think Henry Cavill is a really good Superman. Yeah. And I think he is kind of, he's playing for the first time a Superman who has no divisions between Clark and Superman. And you can argue whether that's a good choice or not in the script, but I think he makes that very compelling. Sure. And I think his journey in the movie, he illustrates very well. I also like Amy Adams as Lois. I don't think she and Henry Cavill necessarily have great chemistry, although I don't know if they're really allowed to do that in this movie because they, no, they don't handle the romance side very well no but i think lois i kind of like that they let her be a little more capable and smart than in some other interpretations kind of figuring out superman's secrets um i think it's they did that so well in superman the movie i, I don't and, and in other versions of superman i don't know if that's something you want to mine for the movie again uh i think this movie has some of the best special effects in film history no matter what you think of the destruction element in the climax sure, which yeah. is obviously controversial, the actual sense of like flight and impact and power we get is just unparalleled. No one's ever even tried that. Yeah. And they tried it and I think really pulled that off. There's never been superhero action on this scale and I think it's immersive and breathtaking and sometimes horrifying. But however you feel about it, it does elicit a strong response and I think that means the movie is succeeding at something there. Yeah. Even if it's just the crafts level. But it is succeeding on that level. Um, I do like the general thematic through line. I don't think it's perfect. But I think the idea of a Superman torn between these godly and human forms and really playing it out on this almost Shakespearean stage, uh, I think it comes down to, I really like the final exchange in the movie, which is he gets to the Daily Planet. Lois says, welcome to the planet. He says, happy to be there here. And it ends with Henry Cavill smiling. Sure. I don't think every step along that path is perfect. No. I think many of them are flawed, but I do like it. That is a it's true a, line. It's a good scene in isolation, I guess. Like, I, okay. I, I don't feel like the movie sets it up very well. Yeah. And I like a lot of the rest of the cast. I think Russell Crowe is a good Jor-El. Lawrence Fishburne's a good Perry White. Doesn't have a lot to do, but I think he's good. Yeah. Uh, and I think Kevin Costner, I don't... The way they write Pot Kent is very confusing in this movie. Yeah. I think Kevin Costner is very good. Sure, yeah. Like, the character he's given is strange 
Yes. He's very strange for a number of reasons, but yeah, he's, yeah. he's not bad. Okay, now, the flaws. Okay. Look. Yeah. It really does come down to the way they handle the climax. And I know that. Okay, yeah. And well, like, I think there are other things, but I think there that's are other the things. biggest thing. But it, but it, it all kind of comes to that heading, though, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, like, that, that is the That is where you realize that that's what this movie is. And the thing is, watch. I watched the entire, like, fight between Zod and Superman again. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is it comes down to, I think, a f- series of small adjustments they could have made that would have left a big impact. It's not necessarily that the level of destruction is too much, but that Superman does so little to stop the bleeding. Yeah. Like... The Avengers movies have a lot of destruction, too. It's not like this is the first movie that invented the idea of buildings falling down in a superhero movie. But it is, if you look at it, I really wish they had just done something to make Superman look like he cared about any of that going on. If you look at it again, it's not like he's doing anything bad. He's not actively trying to kill people. He's, He's trying to do his best in this fight, but I think you could have taken it a step further where... He is complicit in some of that smashing. Logically, he would have had to kill hundreds of people in this. There's a scene where he throws an exploding tanker into a building. I mean, he killed thousands of people in that scene. And directly. And I think all you had to do throughout this sequence, if you wanted... It it would still be a darker version of Superman, but I think you could pull it off. Is him struggling, trying to save as many people as possible, trying to avoid the additional carnage. He doesn't have to succeed every step of that way. Superman doesn't always succeed. Yeah. But you could have him just, if he's just trying, that changes. And even if you do all of that and you kept the ending the same with him killing Zod, I still don't think that would be the right choice. But the whole point is that Zod is trying to kill this small family and Superman has no other option. If you had 30 minutes of him trying to save absolutely everybody and this was like the last resort, that makes more sense thematically for what they're building. Sure. Now, again, you could argue that just shouldn't happen in a Superman movie. Or at the very least, you should set it up in a way that Superman can't save those people simply by executing his most simplistic of powers, flying. Yes. No, but you see what I mean here? It's like... Yes, yeah. I mean, it's something that when we we talked about Avengers 2, it was something we talked about a lot, that there is particularly... There's the scene where Tony in the Hulkbuster suit fights the Hulk in that city, and there's like... Attention paid specifically to Tony trying to minimize the damage, trying to save people, and it's like, but still needing to incapacitate the Hulk, obviously. And it's like, obviously, like, there's still, like, there are casualties and there's damage being done, but there is a concerted effort to make Tony Stark feel like a superhero, not just a dude who's fighting in a populated city because cities blowing up looks cool. Exactly. And I think... I think there are. I think the pieces are all here in Man of Steel. I I do personally because I think that through line is a good idea. But there are dots that are left unconnected because of the carnage that goes on, because of the killing of Zod that is not really justified. All of those things. You just change a couple of those details, and that through line starts to shine through more. Which is the idea is that Superman becomes Superman on the job when his past comes to haunt him again sure. through Zod, and if it's he becomes a Superman we recognize in that. I think that's a good idea then for a movie where you have a one single story that's told. Like one yeah. of the strengths I think Man of Steel has over the 1978 movie, for instance, is that the 78 movie is three movies with like little intermissions in between. Sure. It's, it's yeah. three acts. And the Man of Steel is like one concentrated, focused story, beginning, middle, end that you have. And I think that's it's just such a tough thing to do as a superhero story where these are inherently serialized in their comic yeah. book nature. And But the problem is when it goes too fast, and as you say, there's no moment where he really feels like Superman. Yeah. But I don't think that's impossible in the story they told. You could have built that if you have, as you say, this threat comes, but instead of just letting the buildings fall, he goes in and picks up everyone out of it. Yeah. You know? Because it is something where it just feels like there is a... 
and it's it's a very personal thing. But but for me, there is a fundamental core misunderstanding of the Superman character that like I only fully realized at the end. But then like when you think about the rest of that movie. Like, oh, it is. I, it's, and it's really, honestly, I think it's actually mostly crystallized in the character of Pa Kent. Yes. Like, they show, like, it is like once you get that wrong and you don't get the heritage of Superman right, Superman as a character can't exist in that world. And, like, Pa Kent being whatever Pa Kent was in that movie, just, like, feeling very, like, morally inconsistent, yes. which is, like... Superman, the one thing Superman needs more than anything is a incredibly powerful moral foundation that never wavers. It's like it is what makes him function fundamentally as a character. And that comes from where he comes from. That's something that like the Richard Donner movie gets so perfectly. Like without even having to spend really time on it. It's just something you understand implicitly through the characterization and through the beginning of that film. That this movie spends way more tr- time trying to do... Because then it also like balances all that stuff with like the Russell Crowe's Jor-El and all that stuff, and they even with all that extra time they spend on it, it feels like they never really like get around to figuring out what it is that makes Superman take it. It feels like they tried really hard to figure that out, and I get Superman is a very hard character to do, but at the end of the day, like they didn't do him right. No, they didn't, and that is the biggest flaw with this movie. I think you have the three key creative people on this being Zack Snyder. David S. Goyer and Christopher Nolan, yeah, all talented in different ways in other f- formats. Not a one of them likes Superman. If you actually toss them in interviews, yeah. and not a one of them understands. Superman. Yeah, there is a reason why Batman is getting top billing in this sequel. Well, because I think Snyder does some things very well, and I actually think he gets shit on a little too much on the internet because yeah. he is a talented filmmaker. Yeah, you I'm never going to dispute that. You cannot look at something like 300 and say that was made by someone talentless. I'm yeah, sorry. It's, yeah, no. it's a technical marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's not all that matters in filmmaking, but it is spectacle. It's something that matters. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't understand this character. And I think he has a sadistic side and that is okay in something like Watchmen. Yeah. It's okay in something like 300. It is not okay in something like Superman where sadism is really not the the word of the day. Yeah, because there was it was also like some of like the response to like some of the controversy around the ending, specifically with him killing Zod, was like if like Zack Snyder basically saying, like, well we had an idea of like, well, why does Superman never kill anyone? Like we felt like we needed to give him a yeah. reason in the story. It's like the, you already fucked up. I don't kill people. I don't need some sort of tragic backstory where I shot a motherfucker in the head. And that's and I was like, the killing does feel really bad. You're right. I'm not going to kill people. That's not how it works. Like, right. It's like, that's not what Superman is about. Like Superman already knows yes. not to kill people. Like, and not, not just not to kill people. He knows like what you're talking about with like the Superman and the mole men. Superman is the character who's like there for the people who are being exploited. He's like he is like he is there standing up for the for the weak and for the people who cannot stand up for themselves for like any number of reasons. And he's not a person, even though he is the strongest person on the planet, he never solves a problem through violence. That's not what he is. That's not right. what he's supposed to be. And, and it's a very incredibly difficult character to get right. Like I'm like Everyone knows that. That's right. Why most people have this misconception about the character that, like, he's just a boring character that's, like, nothing about Superman can ever be interesting because he's so often done very poorly. But when he is done right, there is something so magical about the Superman character. And, like, if you want to see good Superman stuff, see Superman the movie and see Superman the animated series and then the Justice League cartoons that are basically followed from that. Like, 
those are incredible interpretations of that character or read All-Star Superman. It's like when that character is done right, there is nothing like him. I agree. And right now, if you want a current modern live action take, watch Supergirl yes, on CBS. Yeah, I have yeah. said that many times. I know it's a woman instead of a man, but it is a perfect live action version yeah. of that. And in terms of you talk about the moral foundation and those ideas, and it really does take all of that. And frankly, it does a lot of what Man of Steel tried to do. And I just think bald-faced is saying... Here's what they did. We're going to do the same thing right. Yeah. And they and it's honestly Supergirl has helped me realize some things about Man of Steel because I think it is so pointed and smart in how it does that character. And it's a different thing because it's a it's a woman. It's got a kind of feminist edge to it. Yeah. But fundamentally the things that make Superman Superman are genderless. Yes. Yeah. And and that really transfers over to that. So, you know, it can absolutely be done right. It's being done right at this moment. Yeah. Just on TV, maybe not in film. Yeah. And you know, we're going to Zack Snyder that side of him could work better for Batman. I am worried he's just going to become a Frank Miller apologist, which I hate I Frank Miller's like, interpretation of Batman. Oh my God. But. Like, you just saying that just made me realize that Zack Snyder is absolutely going to become the Frank Miller of movies. Like, that's... It's sad, but I feel like that has got to be his destiny, right? And I mean, like, the guy I who's, like, has- this visionary creative in his youth that did some stuff that was, like, massively influential for a particular part of the market that then like, inexplicably one day wakes up and becomes the most fascist person on the planet. I just, I think when you have a sense of style and you have a strong voice and you don't quite understand what you're saying, it can yeah. go wrong fast. Yeah. Now, Frank Miller knows exactly what he's saying. I'm not letting Frank Miller off the hook, but Zack Snyder <laughs> seems like a nice guy, so yeah, I just want yeah. to give him the benefit of the doubt. So anyway, but we'll talk about that more next week with Batman yeah. v Superman, Dawn of Fascism. Yeah, but it, and I do want to say before we move on, like... You are, like, I completely agree with you still now. Like, there are parts of Man of Steel that are still, like, really well done, particularly a lot of the technical elements. But it is, like, it is that missing core of the character that's wrong with the movie, not, like, the the technical parts of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. One more Superman movie. Number seven. I mean, there's more than one, but right now. Number seven is Superman Returns from 2006. This is the movie I was referencing earlier. I think this was the right movie at the wrong time. I don't think it's a perfect movie. But have I, you rewatched it? I rewatched parts of it. Okay. I did not have time to watch the whole. I thing. have not seen this movie since it was in theaters in like what two thousand six. Two thousand six. Yeah. So it's been ten years. This was Brian Singer's attempt to do Superman in the modern era, paying homage to the uh, Richard Donner films while so trying to update it. Some would say excessive homage excessive to the Richard Donner films. But here's the thing: that I think Superman Returns has some flaws. Yeah. Some of them are overstated in criticism of the movie. I do think it's a good movie, and I actually like some of this movie an awful lot. And I think the number one thing about it is that this was made by a team of people, Brian Singer on down, who love Superman passionately. Yeah. Like, Brian Singer walked away from X-Men, left that franchise behind that he had built with bare fucking hands yeah. to get it as good as it possibly could be. Under and he walked really away from X2 like, yeah. at a big high for the, yes. that franchise. Just so he could make this Superman movie, because Superman had been in development hell for a long time. Yeah. And that passion, I think, matters more than people realize. Because Man of Steel, I think the number whatever you think, it's a good movie, bad movie. The reason it's divisive, I think it's made by people who don't really care about Superman. Yeah. And people who are coming from the outside in. Superman Returns has such a good heart to it. It's yeah. got such a strong heart to it. And it's got such a passion behind every fucking frame of wanting to do Superman right by, do right by Superman. Yeah. And I think you can accuse it of being slow. You can accuse it of having some lazy plotting. What you can accuse it of is misunderstanding Superman or misrepresenting Superman. Hey, 
the first thing Superman does in this movie is, is save a plane from crashing. Yes. There is no more Superman thing you can do other than, like, finding a train that is going to go over a bridge where, like, the rails have broken and then be, like, going and flying in and being the rails of the yes. train to drive over. That's the most Superman thing you could do. The second most is saving a crashing plane. Yes. On a baseball field. Yes. The most American yeah. thing he can, you know. And, and and that's the thing, though, is that it does Superman in, as you say, the most Superman way possible. But I also think it finds a way to interrogate the character... But not in the way where Man of Steel, he's just going to kill people. Like, yeah. it's more complex than that. And I don't think it's the most successful part of the movie. But the whole idea of a Superman who has this existential crisis, leaves for a few years to try yeah. to learn something about himself, comes back and tries to feel comfortable again. And then there's this whole thing with his son in this movie. Yeah. And this idea of lineage and parentage and adoption and things like that. Again, I don't think every point of it is like explored fully or explored at its best. But when it's, I just think it's an interesting set of ideas yeah. to, to frame the movie on. And I think the movie's at its best when it tries to explore that. Like the whole thing with Lois having kind of lost her faith in Superman. And this being kind of a faith allegory, but not as overt as some versions yeah, of Superman Yeah, it's not are. Man of Steel like Superman falling out of the thing in like a Jesus pose. Even though there's nothing about that movie that vaguely implies religion or faith. No, but like Superman yeah. has historically been attached to those things. So you're yes. going to have him have a moment of crisis in a church. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, but Superman Returns I think does it much better because yeah. there is no explicit references to those things. But the idea of Superman as both God and man... And someone who is befriended by men and and by and at the enemy of people who want to fight gods and someone yeah. like Lex Luthor. You know, I think that's an interesting thematic through line. I think Brandon Ruth is a fucking great Superman. Yeah, I agree. And I think he doesn't get enough credit. Yeah. I'm really happy that he gets to play the Adam in those TV yes. shows now. That seems like he's, and here's the thing, I don't think I ever realized how good Brandon Ruth is in this movie until I saw him on TV in He's on Chuck, he's on uh, Arrow and Flash and Legends of Tomorrow. He's become a really good TV supporting actor. And I think you go back and look at Superman Returns, it's all there. He's just, he's not the most expressive of actors. Yeah. But I think he gets a lot through with a little, and I think he's not just doing a Christopher Reeves impression. No. He has a lot of the same qualities, but I think his Superman is very human very, I think it's maybe the most relatable, just in the sense of he seems like a very approachable presence. Yeah. And yet, when he's flying in the suit, and you know, he becomes CGI for certain scenes. <laughs> sure. Yeah. He, ha- he has this good godlike presence too, but it's not a scary godlike presence, as in Man of Steel or clearly what they're doing in Batman v Superman. Yeah. It is this benevolent force, and I think that's very interesting. There just is something I think very gentle and spiritual and atmospheric about this movie I really liked. And there's all the other things that are good about it. I, you know, you've got fucking Kevin Spacey as Lex Luthor. Yeah. Sign me up. Yeah, he's good in that movie. He's, he's definitely very good, good in that movie. And I love uh, Parker Posey as his like girlfriend who's like the person he plays right. off of. Yeah. Parker Posey's awesome. That's a great piece of yeah. chemistry there. I don't think Lex Luthor's plan is very interesting in this movie. But no, Lex it's like Kryptonite so Island, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest flaw in the movie. We can just say it now. It just does the plot from Superman 1 in terms of Lex Luthor again. But the thing is, Lex Luthor's plot in Superman 1 is only the final third of that movie. Yeah. Like, he shows up a little earlier than that, but his actual plot you don't learn anything about until the final third. And then also, like, there's something almost frighteningly plausible about his, like, real estate scam of, like, destroying the West Coast. And, like, like, there's something about that that I, like, look at that movie, like, because I watched the movie a couple of years ago again, and it's like... This like this kind of feels like something that like a Donald Trump like person would maybe actually do. Yes. This is kind of frightening. Yes, and I, again, I see the the thematic link in some of the Kryptonite Island stuff, and I think some of it's good. I like some of the final stuff on the island. I think visually it's very cool. Yeah. Um, 
but it's just it's it's not enough to hang a movie on, frankly, no. and it makes it a little slow. And and leaning too hard on Kryptonite is the exact wrong choice to ever make with Superman in a yes. like big mass media facing version of him because. That's like the the audience's misconception about Superman is that Superman fights Lex Luthor and he's always defeated by Kryptonite, which is like that happens in Superman stories. That happens in bad Superman stories. Like Superman yeah. is so much more than going up against Kryptonite. It's the laziest plot device. And, and good Superman stories don't use it for a reason. And right. like it's very iconic. And so I understand the the impulse to try to use it in your Superman movie, but. It, it should be stayed away from in general, in my opinion. Yeah, and, you know, so that's the weakest part of the movie. The other thing is just that Lex is there from the very beginning of the movie. I think he has lines of dialogue before Clark does. Uh, yeah, he and must, yeah, because Superman because, takes a bit to come to the movie. Well, yeah, Clark and Superman are there, but they don't speak for a while. Like, yeah. he lands, the first scene is him landing in Iowa. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I really love all that stuff in Iowa, too. There's Brian Singer, just, I think he gets it. He has this visual sense with Superman I really like. But, um... Anyway, what was I going to say? I mean, the problem is Lex is there from the beginning, but Superman doesn't really intersect with Lex until the last hour of the film. Yeah, that's true. So that's And that's okay in Superman the movie because, you know what, Lex isn't really in it until the last hour of the film, so that's yeah. okay. Um, but it's just that's a, a little structural problem here. But I really, I think this movie is a lot of good parts. Even Kate Bosworth, I actually think, is really good as Lois Lane. I think their version yeah. of Lois is fairly interesting because... Honestly, I think it's a better version of what they were trying to do in Man of Steel with Amy Adams, where, yes, she doesn't realize Clark is Superman. Other than that, she's very smart and capable and has this – she has the existential crisis on which the entire movie is is founded. Yeah. So – and then Superman Returns also just on a technical level is very impressive. It's not Man of Steel and the smashy-smashy looks good, but like that, that plane rescue sequence is fantastic. Yeah. It's a yeah. really good – it's an example of how you can do Superman on a big scale without it being about violence or fighting or any of yeah. that. And that's great. Um, some of the visuals in that last part, as I said, on Krypton Island, is Kryptonite Island is really cool. Yeah. Uh, I remember this was, I think, the first time I ever saw a Hollywood movie in IMAX. This is one of the early ones where they started putting Hollywood movies in IMAX. Yeah. It was really cool. Like this movie, I think, just looks cool. Um, it's like got a kind of understated look. It's not super flashy, but it's good. I still think it's my favorite Brian Singer superhero film of the ones he's made. I sure, yeah, yeah. It's maybe up there. Days of Future Past. Yeah, has eclipsed it's, it's it. either that or Days of Future Past. But frankly, I feel more connection to Superman than I do any of those X Men. Yeah, that's true for me as well. I so, like Wolverine, but I do too. But we also just had a really good standalone Wolverine movie, so true. he's not yeah. the focus of Days of Future Past, so whatever. Uh, but I, I just like seeing Hugh Jackman play Wolverine. It makes me happy. No, I do too. And and John Ottman, uh, who always scores and edits, uh, it's kind of a cool dual role he has, uh, Brian Singer's movies, his score for Superman Returns is phenomenal. And it uses the John Williams stuff, but also goes beyond it. And I think it's the best film score Superman has ever had. Like, the John Williams one is iconic, but you mostly remember the theme. I think yeah. John Ottman kind of hits it out of the park minute to minute. And there's some very great emotional moments in this movie. There's some that are f- fall flat, too. But I think, like, the ending... I love the ending to this movie, where he goes to the house, and he talks to his son, who he's figured right, out is his yeah. son. And he gives him the speech that Marlon Brando gave in Superman 1. And then he flies away, or he starts to leave, and Lois comes out and sees him and asks, you know, are you going away this time or something? The last line of the movie is, I'm always here. And then he flies up and listens to humanity and flies away. Like, Brian Singer got it so hard. And this movie did not get the respect it deserved. I wish they could have done a sequel, because I think they they could have made this work. 
And I do think it was maybe the right movie at the wrong time because it did not do well at the time. It only it made less than four hundred million. I looked this oh, up geez. today on a and it was one of the most expensive movies ever made at the time. It was a two hundred and five million dollar budget, which in two thousand six was high. Yeah, um, that's still high now, but not as, comparatively. Lots of movies cost yeah, yeah, that yeah. much. Um, so, I and I think. I don't know if it would have done better if released today because maybe there is more... It is a gentler and softer and more cerebral movie than a lot of superhero movies today. Yeah. But also, one of the things this movie got hit for at the time was the length. And I agree it's too long, but most superhero movies are too long. And I think if you released it today, no one would bat an eyelash at the length. Yeah. That's just kind of how this stuff works, you know? So... I don't know. I think we also might have latched on. I mean, imagine if this came out in the era of like gifts and shit. Kevin Spacey yelling wrong, wrong. That alone would have that gone. would have never gone away. That went away. Like it was, it was a popular thing on the internet for a year or two. I was sad when that went away. I'm like, yeah. Like I'm not even in, in an ironic way. I think that's actually like a really good moment in that movie. I watched like, it it's today. A very Lex Luthor thing to yes, do. Yes, it's a great scene, and there's a lot of great scenes. in It's this. like really funny when you take that out of context, but it's legitimately a good moment yeah. in that movie. I mean, I should say we're at number seven. This, these top seven movies are the seven on this list I really like. Yeah, these are my favorite. I mean, obviously they're my favorite seven, but these this is like the <laughs> cutoff of. I think these are the. Either verging on great to really great movies. Yeah. So, cool. And I think Superman Returns is one of them. Yeah. Superman Returns is a movie I look forward to revisiting someday. Because as I said, I haven't seen it since it's come out. And that's been a long time. Yeah. It's ten years now. Yeah. So, if Batman v Superman is really bad, this might be a good one to just cool off yeah. with. That, and I need to watch Superman in the moment now. Yes. I wasn't expecting that going into this podcast. Same box set. <laughs> Get both of those. Yeah, great. All right, number six, another returns, Batman Returns from 1992. Right, the sequel to the Tim Burton Batman. Yes, which I have said several times. It's my favorite Tim Burton movie. I really like Batman Returns. Sure, yeah, and now that you said that, I'm thinking about that. Nightmare Before Christmas is not, not Tim count. Burton. Yeah, because like, I was like, thinking Before about that. Before you shout at me. Nope. Yeah, it's, you're he, right. He did not write or direct that. You're probably right. It okay. is probably the best Tim Burton movie. Okay. And I think it is maybe because it is the most Tim Burton movie. You were afraid about I mean, that. Look, Batman Returns is not a Batman movie. If you count it as no, a Batman yeah. movie, it fails because the first thing Batman does is strap a bomb to a guy's chest, drop him in a sewer, let him blow up, turn to the camera, and smile. <laughs> not a very Batman thing to do. Yeah. Batman it's a very is- Superman thing to do, according to Zack <laughs> yeah, Steele. But, okay. yeah. uh, no. <laughs> but, but it is such a Tim Burton movie in that you have these... It's about grotesques. It's about the yeah. Penguin, Catwoman, and Batman, and then also Max Shrek, the Christopher Walken character. Right, so you yeah. have these this quartet of characters, all who are varying degrees of grotesque. You have the Penguin, who is visually grotesque. But and, it, like, sexually grotesque. Yes. Like he, the Penguin says some stuff in this movie that you rewatch this yeah. movie, he's like, they, they can't say this in a movie that was, like, marketed mostly for children. Like, yes. That's not okay. But on the inside, he's got this kind of weird purity and innocence that is kind of fascinating. Well, yeah, because he, he feels like he's like a 13-year-old inside. Yes. Yeah. And Tim, that's just a kind of character Tim Burton is fascinated by. On the flip side, you have people like Batman and Catwoman who are mirrors in this. That's obviously been done a lot. I'm not sure I've ever seen it done it better than in this one where you have two True, people yeah. who put on the mask because they feel something is wrong with the world. But really, there's kind of something wrong with themselves. Yes. And all of that. And that's fascinating. And then you have Max Schreck, who is, to the world, this good guy, this businessman, everyone kind of respects, but he is the ugliest inside, and he incites all of this. And I don't know, I've never understood how anyone was able to trust a character played by Christopher Walken called Max Schreck. Exactly. Like, that's the most untrustworthy, like, just like, you're not even a human being, are you? Like, you spend half watching that movie, half the time thinking he's like, 
Is the twist going to be that he's like an alien? Like, what? What is the? What is the deal with this character? Well, it's kind of funny because there are a lot of superhero movies, and it looks like Batman v Superman is going to be one of them, where you have the non-superheroic character who is the catalyst for everything, like the villain behind the scenes. Yeah. And this is the first movie that I think did that, and I still think it's the best of sure, those. Yeah. Of having Penguin is not really the villain. Catwoman is not really the villain. The villain is Max Shrek. And Catwoman and the Penguin are problems Batman has to deal with because they're going to destroy the city. Yeah. But they're not really fully to blame for these things. And I just think it, this movie is utterly gorgeous. The design, yeah, yeah. it's all the same stuff from Batman, but now done at Christmas time with snow. Uh, Tim Burton shoots the hell out of this. It looks so good. I had the, the good luck to see this in a theater at the Denver Film oh, Center cool. a couple of Christmases ago. Just utterly gorgeous. And it's a weird... It's obviously set at Christmas. It's a weird movie to watch around Christmas. It is not a very Christmas... Fitting, but it's not a very Christmas-like spirited movie, let's say. Except in some ways it is because part of it is about this difference between what we have on the surface of society and what the seedy underbelly is. Sure. And it is very critical of... I mean, it's saying Gotham is... I mean, Tim Burton's message in this movie, it is the darkest Batman movie because the message is Gotham is literally unsalvageable. Yeah. It is a trash fire. There is nothing you can do about it. Christmas is one of these things that is just a band-aid on the patch. It, it's, it's this... Just utter lie. And that's why I think Christmas and the commercialism of it that the movie has in it, it's it's very pointed that it's at Christmas. That's not a, like, mistake. And I think it's, of all the Batman things that use Christmas as a setting, this is probably my favorite. And Batman and Christmas somehow go together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because Batman cannot exist in any months during, like, in spring or summer. Right. He just, like, evaporates. And, or in, like, actually the old city of Gotham ceases to exist, like, yes. unilaterally for spring and summer, and then comes back in for fall and winter. Right. So you have all of that, and I just think the thematic clashes of those things is fascinating. You could write a Freudian analysis of this. Yeah. You could write a weird kind of Marxian analysis of this. You could go a lot of different philosophical routes. I think it's one of Tim Burton's most loaded philosophical portraits. But also just in terms of Tim Burton having this interest in the grotesques and in a society that is broken. This is the one where he pushes it the furthest. It is his most nihilistic movie. The message, again, is society is utterly broken. It creates people like the Penguin and Catwoman and Batman, and the cycle will continue forever. That's the message. I mean, Batman, the end of the movie, Gotham is fucked. It's more fucked than it's ever been. Batman did nothing to save it. He just stopped the bleeding for this moment, but the bleeding might have been fatal. I mean, that's the end of the movie. It... It's kind of funny that you could even... Of course Tim Burton stopped. You can't make a third movie off Batman Returns. Yeah. It's the end of all things. And I think in that way, it might actually be a really smart Batman movie because it's kind of this almost criticism of the Batman mythos rather than a serious take on them. But in this kind of live-action setting, you might almost have to take that because some of the things I think maybe The Dark Knight Rises teaches us is if you poke too far at the Batman thing when you're doing the gritty realistic thing, it does fall apart. Yeah. You have to walk that line very... Evenly, I honestly, Batman Returns is in some ways analogous with me to like the Rocksteady games, where I think it walks the right line in some ways. Rocksteady does that better in terms yeah. of a Batman interpretation, but just as a movie, I very much like Batman Returns. Uh, also, the Danny Elfman score. It's my favorite Danny Elfman score. It's just oh, brilliant. Yeah. So, um, Batman Returns. I have nothing but good things to say about it. And then there's the creepy things, like, fuck, Danny DeVito is creepy. Yeah. Yeah, like for like I I definitely like Batman Returns and I would say it's a better movie than the original Batman, but like there's something that, about it that I like don't like I like it, but it's like I don't definitely I I just I've never felt like a compulsion to like watch it again. Like it's, and I don't watch it much. It's a yeah. hard movie to watch, but because it's just like it it does it feels like it has like a lot of philosophical ideas 
but I don't feel like it never really fully develops one of them. I think it's like the impression I felt when I came away from it is it's like there's a lot of interesting things here, but I feel like it's like there's almost too much of it. Like if it had been more focused, maybe I would have come away more intrigued, but it was more like it almost reminds me of uh, how I feel about the graphic novel Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on Serious Earth. Okay. That's like there's a lot of stuff here that's interesting, but at the same time, like I kind of come away from it feeling like I can go grab like my English 101, like Norton Anthology's Introduction to Literary Criticism and like point to like three chapters and be like, hey, he probably basically read these three things before he made this movie. Like it's got that kind of quality to it. To yeah. Me. No, I get that. And it was just not that big of a knock on the movie. Like I still think right. it's a good movie, but it's like it, I have conflicted feelings I, on it. But I just also like as someone who loves the weird movies that somehow get through the studio system. Yeah. This is sure, heaven yeah. because. Yeah, it's definitely got it, that quality. I mean, there is no other superhero movie you can point to that is as pure an auteur statement as this one. Yeah, I agree with that. Full on. Tim Burton got to do whatever the hell he wanted with a big budget. And it's it's an art house movie. It's not a big, but it's not a mainstream superhero movie. Yeah, that's that's for sure. And it's one of the only ones you can ever point to with that. Because even something like The Dark Knight or The Avengers, where Christopher Nolan and Joss Whedon, their voice is loud and strong. It still is filtered in some ways. You yeah, know? it still feels like a studio made film. Yeah, for sure. Which is fine. I, yeah. Probably for better in some ways. Yeah. But you know, both of those. Yeah, the, the world can't take too many Batman Returns. I don't no. think. I mean, again, it's it's uh, clearly the studio panicked about this movie. If you look at the history of it, yeah, they. I mean, they course corrected really fucking hard after it, and you see why. I think. I mean, parents were complaining all over the place because this probably is probably rightfully so. Again, some of the shit that Danny DeVito says in that movie is like, you can't say that in a superhero movie. It's like it's not R-rated. This isn't Deadpool. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy, but uh, that's Batman Returns, and now we get to number five, another Batman. Batman Begins. Okay. It's a weird... Like, I agree with these rankings, but it's still weird to put those titles next to each other in that order. Yes. So 2005, Batman Begins. Not a perfect movie, but with what it does well, goddamn does it do it well. Yeah. I mean, the first hour of Batman Begins is the best Batman story ever told on live-action film. Yeah. And, And arguably the best like Batman origin story yes. I think ever like I'm not one of those guys who's super big on Batman year one like I like it but I think Batman Begins is a much better version yes. of the Batman year one story I uh it's kind of funny I think we have the two best origin story superhero movies on this list I don't know if I would say yeah, one's yeah. better than the other but they're both on this list I won't spoil what the other one is maybe you can figure it out <laughs> maybe because we're talking about two different yeah. superheroes but uh Batman, Batman Begins is definitely one of them and I think this is one of the things I've always felt is too bad about the Christopher Nolan movies is that Christian Bale, his performance kind of freezes in amber after this one because he's really only Batman in The Dark Knight. He's yeah. barely out of the suit mm-hmm. in that one. And I think that works fine for that movie, but The Dark Knight Rises really should have turned the scales again, and they didn't. Yeah. And he's so good in Batman Begins. Like, his Bruce Wayne, I think, in that first hour particularly, I think he's really, really good as yeah. someone who is just torn apart from the inside. You really do. I mean, the question is... For Christopher Nolan, and Christopher Nolan is someone who his entire filmography is a anthropological study of human emotions. 
He is, I think, the more emotional version of Stanley Kubrick. And I'm not making the comparison he is as good as Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. But he has a similar interest on humanity. Yeah, I agree. Which is Stanley Kubrick is trying to figure out human behavior and, like, from this kind of anthropological side. Yeah. And I think Christopher Nolan is trying to figure out human emotion. Like, why do people feel the things they feel? Why do people do the things they do because of their hearts? Yeah. You know, that's... And Inception, to me, is always going to be his best movie because it's literally... He puts that in a framework of dreams and a, a like, sci-fi setting where you see all of that taken very um, procedurally almost. But Batman Begins is that question of, okay, if a guy were in the real world to dress up like a bat and fight crime, why would he do that? Yeah. And he takes that question seriously and not in the like super grim, dark, like... Frank Miller version. Yeah. Yeah. But and like not excessively seriously, this still has a comic book edge to it, but like, well, what are the steps that it would take to make someone do that? And I think it is such a fascinating version of that story. And I think maybe, you know, the last 45 minutes of this movie are not its best because when it gets into more conventional superhero territory, yeah. that's never what Chris Nolan does well. And The Dark Knight yeah. largely elides that and it's better for it. But when Batman Begins is asking those fundamental emotional questions, it is as good as anything on this list. Yeah, there's that sequence near the beginning of Batman Begins that has always struck me really hard and is something that I like feel like is going to be as more... As the Batman origin story is told and retold and retold throughout all of human history from this point forward, I hope that like this is one of those things like the the pearl necklace from the Frank Miller version that gets taken as like this very iconic moment is uh, I forget the name of the guy, but the guy who kills his parents is on trial and right. Bruce goes up and it like with a gun in his coat basically and is like going to shoot him and decides not to like that sequence and that idea that like he would go that far and that feels like that is the in many ways, like the, the psychological straw that breaks the camel's back is really p- a powerful idea to me. And like, like, especially the, the connection that the Batman character has to guns in particular has always fascinated me as it, because it, as an American, that is like one, like a very like identifiably American, American superhero with Batman and like America's own very sordid relationship with, with firearms, especially like in modern times. Like, I just love that idea that that is a moment that Bruce Wayne has. That's like he goes right to that edge and then he takes a step back and that's when he decides he needs to become Batman. And, like, that's what Batman is. Like, he doesn't know the Bat part yet, but he understands. I think, like, that's the moment where he gets the idea of, like, what it is that he needs to become. Like, he can't be the guy who walks up and shoots the dude. That's not what it means to, like, try to get justice. Exactly. And, you know... There are so many things Christopher Nolan did right in this movie. Yeah. Christian Bale, for this one, great casting, but everyone else is even better. I mean, Gary Oldman is Gordon. He's yeah. great from the start. Yeah. Michael Caine is Alfred. Never been a better yes. Alfred. Oh, my God. He's so good. He's so, and in this one, probably especially because of what... I mean, there's that great payoff at the end where the house is burning, and he says, what happens when we fall? We get back up. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. payoff just hits you in the gut because yeah. it's Michael Caine saying it. Yeah. And then, then like also like the moment early on in the movie where he like meets Bruce again for the first time. Right. Like on the plane, like that's that's great, powerful. Like he's, yeah. he's Michael Caine is just one of the greatest living actors. So yeah, and Morgan Freeman is Lucius Fox. Finally, bringing Lucius Fox into these movies. Yeah, and uh, using him very well in this. I love the rapport between him and Christian Bale. That's great. You Some- know, you know that an actor does his job really well when he elevates the character so much in the movies that the character starts like bleeding into like video games and comic books and becoming much more popular in those in like the other mediums as well for yes, the character. Yes, exactly. Um, and yeah, I, you know, and there are weaknesses. Katie Holmes, I don't think is untalented or anything. I have not seen a lot of her work. It's not her fault. It's not her fault. She's fine in this. The character does not fully work. She is a, 
thematic mouthpiece. She's yeah, not the a character. character works for the first act of the movie, and then it feels like they don't really understand what to do with her past yeah. that point. Uh, I don't think it's a great version of Scarecrow. I think Killian no, Murphy is good casting, but... He just doesn't have much to do, no. honestly. It's like, in, I really love the look of Scarecrow with, like, the mask and stuff, and him having, like, he has, like, his business suit on, and he puts on the yeah. mask, and he's like, ah! Like, that stuff's really cool, but, yeah, they don't... And thematically, it's perfect. Like, yeah. having Scarecrow in this movie is the right choice. It's not fully followed up on, It just but, feels like the attention is split so much between him and then Liam Neeson as Rachel Gould. Who is That's, great. Yeah, yes. he's really great in this movie, and it's like, it's... The Scarecrow is not a... The Scarecrow is not a villain that typically has that much presence in Batman stories anyways, like Arkham Knight, uh, regardless. But then also, like, when he's being played second fiddle to Rachel Ghoul, played by Liam Neeson, it's like, what are you going to do? Like, it's like... I mean, Tilly Murphy's a really cool actor, and I like him a lot, you know, like, coming out from, like, 28 Days Later, but he can't right. hold his own against Liam Neeson playing but, a much more powerful character. And I guess the last thing I'll say about Batman Begins is that I think if you're maybe a younger listener to our podcast, and maybe you, the first one you saw in theaters was The Dark Knight, and you just grew up with the Chris Nolan interpretation, you might not remember how seismic it was when this came out. Yes, absolutely. This, like, this is the moment when superhero movies clicked again. Yeah, it was like... Batman Begins was part one, and then Iron Man was part two for yes. like the the era of modern superhero movies. But this is the one where someone, a serious filmmaker, got their hands on it, cut their teeth on it, and released something that you know Batman was a joke at this point. I mean, yeah. after Batman and Robin and all those years in the wild, it was just something that I think people thought could not work on film. Yeah, and here comes it in. Batman Begins is a great movie. It was great then. It's great now, and it just I think it hit everyone like a ton of bricks. Yeah, yeah, it definitely hit me like that. Like, yeah. it was, I mean, that's and, one of the things that like got me way more into Batman as a thing. Like, it was yes. like I really liked the Batman cartoon, but that was kind of as far as it had gone for me. Then watching Batman Begins was what like kind of made me interested in like maybe I should read some of the comics. And now I've read like a bunch of Batman comics at this point. Absolutely, and you know the top six movies. I think f- on my list, I think five of them are Batman movies. There are a lot of really good Batman movies. Yes, it's, yeah, it's, for sure. There's a lot of bad ones. But there are more good ones, and I will say, the, the, the next three Batman movies we're going to talk about, it speaks to how good those are that they would outclass Batman Begins, because I could justifiably put this higher. This is yeah. a great movie. I, I love Batman Begins, yeah. for sure. It's, it's, it's one of the best, maybe some would say the second best superhero origin movie ever made. Yes. But number four is, to me, an even better Batman movie. Oh, we get to talk about this. 1966, yes. Batman the Movie, with Adam West, Burt Ward, Cesar Romero, all that. Because Burgess fucking Meredith yeah. as the Penguin. Yeah. Good. Okay, I watched this today yeah. for the first time. Fuck yeah. And I really, this. I almost put this at like number two. This is so This movie is so fucking good, This is right? so good. How come nobody knows that this movie is this good, Jonathan? I have a theory. Okay, so this is the movie version of the Batman TV series with Adam West, Burt Ward, it came out the summer after the first season. I looked this up. So um, that was kind of the context for it. And actually, this is the most famous thing from that because for many, many years, up until actually last year, nothing from the Adam West TV series was commercially available on, huh. on DVD, VHS, any of that. It was only this movie because Fox owned the movie exclusively, so they always put it out on DVD and Blu-ray. But Fox and Warner Brothers co-owned the series. Uh. And so for many years, it was never out. And it was not until last year it came out on Blu-ray. And it's apparently a really cool set. I'm totally going to buy it now because I love this movie so much. Yeah. Um, that's out. But so the movie is kind of the most famous thing. But here's my, th- my theory. 
if you know the 1960s Batman, you know that it is one intentionally funny. Yes, absolutely. It is, like it is they, not. It, it's, it's not, not a, on. It's not that it's not in on the joke. It is 100% in on the joke. It's 100% in on the joke. It is, but it plays it very straight-faced. Yeah. It has a great sense of irony. It is also beautifully, brilliantly written, very clever, and has a much stronger sense of character and plot than people give it credit for. Yeah. And I think the problem is people today, particularly young people probably our age, one, don't understand irony. And <laughs> yeah. two, they don't understand this kind of humor. I think this is a lost form of humor. I agree, yeah. And I think yeah. people just assume, oh, that was the 60s. It's old, so it must be bad. It was, they're so silly. See, they don't understand Batman Dark. That's what it is. Yeah. And I think people, and I've fallen into that, where I just kind of assume that was the prevailing cultural theory on this stuff. And so for many years, I didn't even seek out the Adam West stuff. Now I'm so happy I have. I had kind of looked at some episodes of the show before this. And, and kind of was starting to fall in love with it and then watch this movie. And man, biggest grin on my face. So fun. It's so fun. It's so good. Yeah, like, it, it's something where it's like people, I like, it's like the, the darker version of Batman should be the primary version of Batman. Like, I'm not arguing, like, sitting here saying it's like everything should be like super campy, funny Adam West style Batman, but there should be room in, in people's hearts. For a campy, funny version of Batman. Yes. Because Batman is a ridiculous character. Yes. And it's like, if anything, I watch this now, and it feels ahead of its time. Yeah. Because, frankly, we need something like this again. Because I love a lot of superhero movies today, but, yeah, they're silly. And it's okay to, I mean... It's it's okay to take the piss out of Batman. Yes. It's a, like, ridiculously over-serious character most of the time. Yes. It's, yeah. And yet, within that... It is so clever. It is so mm-hmm. well written. It has such a strong sense of character for Batman and Robin. Like, Batman is a sort of natural-born leader. He yeah. is really he's wickedly smart. He has this sense of purpose to everything he does. And he's very noble. And he's obviously got more in common with Superman than he does later interpretations of Batman. Yeah, yeah. And then Robin is the Boy Scout. He is there to learn, to be the good assistant, to, to try to do his best morally. And yeah. together they just have this great rapport. I mean, Burt Ward... And and Adam West together, best chemistry in any superhero thing ever. Yeah. Just they're yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. They're so great. And then the villains, my God. Like something this definitely doesn't get enough credit for. I think the villains in the 60s Batman are so influential and they don't mm-hmm. get credit for yeah. it. But like Burgess Meredith's Penguin, every single interpretation of the Penguin after him is taken from Burgess Meredith. Yeah, definitely. And if you don't know, Burgess Meredith is Mickey from Rocky. And if that doesn't make you want to watch this movie, I don't know what will. You get to see yeah. Mickey from Rocky play the fucking Penguin. It's great. Yeah. Never has there been better casting. No. But like, you look at what Nolan North does in the Arkham games, he's totally yes. inspired by Burgess yeah, Meredith. absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Cesar Romero's Joker. Yeah, Jack Nicholson was inspired. I think Heath Ledger was inspired in some ways. He's yeah, not. I mean, every version of the Joker is inspired by what Cesar Romero did. Like, yes. Like that because another thing that people maybe don't understand is that, that that version of Batman, that Adam West Batman, was the popular conception of Batman at the time. Like yes. because like Batman has had phases where he's darker in comics history, although it's hard to look at old Batman stuff and think of it as dark because of how old it is. But like for the 30s, it was dark, and Batman fucking shot people back in the day. But it w- he didn't shoot people in a way that felt like, man, he shot that guy. It was like, man, this comic is moving at a blisteringly fast pace, and I don't even know what's happening anymore. But like, you know, in the Silver Age, Batman fought like dumb fucking aliens that came down from space to like steal our trees or some fucking bullshit you know like yeah. he do you know where the giant penny in the bat cave came from it came from him fighting a dude called the punny or the penny plunderer the penny plunderer a man who plunders pennies 
Which doesn't seem like a great way to try to become a criminal. It seems like if you're going to steal any kind of money, the worst kind of money to steal are goddamn pennies. Most people are doing their best to not plunder pennies. I I actively spend pieces of my day avoiding acquiring pennies because I don't want them. But Batman defeated a man called the Penny Plunderer and stole his most plundered of all pennies. The giant penny. (laughs) You know, that's what Batman was in the 60s. There's room for the character for that. And so it's, it feels very appropriate for, the, for the, the Adam West Batman to have this, like, really tongue-in-cheek tone and totally get it. You know, like, when there's, yes. like, a bat shark repellent and the, the joke is that it's, like, it's ridiculous that Batman has a, like, tool in his utility belt for any random given situation. Like, the, like they were making that joke. That joke doesn't come from people making fun of the show, which I feel like is what people don't understand. Yeah. Is that the show made that joke yes. because of stuff that happened in the comics and stuff. Because the show is smart and yes. it's clever and it's imaginative. Like, there's this... That shark seed is just amazing. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing where he's like, Robin, send me the shark repellent. That, yeah. It's just great. It's this fucking shitty rubber shark. It's great. But what makes moments like that work is Adam West is so good. Like, it's yeah. a... He's got incredible comic timing. I do not joke when I say I think he's the best live-action Batman. Because he has such a clear sense of the character. Mm -hmm. Both as Batman and as as Bruce Wayne. Like, you don't see a lot of, like, publicity stills now of, you know, him in just the Bruce Wayne guys. But there's a long scene in this movie where it's brilliant. Like, I can't believe no one else has ever done this plot in a Batman movie. But it's where the villains decide to kidnap Bruce Wayne to get to Batman. Yeah, yeah. Of course they would. Of co- and that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And so he has to get out of the situation as Bruce Wayne. And so the movie for 30 minutes is a James Bond movie. Yeah. And very knowingly. Like, James Bond, this is 66. This was yes. in the public consciousness. He looks like Sean Connery. He, you have that 60s colorful style. And it's a great series of scenes. And then the flip side is that Catwoman is masquerading as this Russian journalist. Right, and, yeah. And there's just this crisscross going on. It's so smart and clever. And then he finally gets out of the situation as Bruce Wayne and comes back as Batman and no one's the wiser. It's just there's so it's just every moment to moment it is so clever, so imaginative, so smart, and has such a clear sense of identity and purpose. I I fucking love this movie. This is a plus. I yeah. mean, it is so good. Yeah, and we were talking a little bit before we recorded the podcast, and like I made the joke, it's like some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. And so it's like legitimately, I think about that scene every other day of my life, like that. There's like that scene Let's has lived it. with. I mean, it's just I don't remember the entire setup because it's been a long time since I saw this movie. Though I watch this clip on YouTube every once in a while, but it's basically there's a cartoon bomb, basically like it's like made out of paper mache. This ridiculous bomb with a fuse, and like Batman has to get rid of it, and he's basically on a pier. And so you have Adam West in the Batman costume running around holding this bomb over his head like he's fucking Link from Ocarina of Time. <laughs> it's just like he'll run like over, and it's like he's just trying to get rid of the bomb, and he'll run over to the side of the pier and be about to throw it and then the camera cuts the reverse shot and there's a like group of ducks he's like I can't throw that he's like has to run over somewhere else he's about to throw it there's like a bus with like nuns getting off of it it's like the scene goes on for like five minutes of him just constantly it's like a fucking Monty Python sketch or something constantly trying to get rid of the bomb and more and more ridiculous stuff just like that like just like innocent puppies and shit like that that keeps on popping up. It's, and then the the punchline of the joke is that he runs into the middle of the frame, like basically just looks at the camera and just says, 
some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. And that's the it's there's the comic timing in that that whole sequence is so pitch perfect that when I say it is like a Monty Python sketch, I mean like it is as well executed as a Monty Python sketch, not just similar to it in premise. Like it no, is it is F- such a great comic I, scene. It's unbelievable. I I like stopped breathing from laughing at that scene. It is so funny. And like the, the also that scene has one of my favorite Adam West line readings. It's early on when he's running through this bar with the bomb and he says, yeah. Flee if you value your lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh my god, it's so fucking good. <laughs> and and you know, you gotta give so Adam West is great, Burt Ward is just as good, his Robin is and Robin has kind of the thankless task as he always does. Yeah. But he's so good in this. I love their like Commissioner Gordon, who's just their pal yeah. and all that. And then all the villains. And the the pleasure of this movie is the four villains working together. Yeah. Um but okay, so the bomb scene is my favorite. But I want to walk you through my two other favorite scenes. Okay, yeah. One is where they get back. The opening section is where they have that yacht that disappears and all that. Yeah. And then they get back and they're, they're trying to figure out who did it. And they realize that the four villains, Catwoman, Penguin, Riddler, and Joker, are all out of jail. And they come to the silliest conclusion to figure out it's them. Because the first one is they're like, oh, it was a shark. It must be the penguin. And that one makes sense. And then Robin is thinking, says, we were in the sea. Sea. Sea for Catwoman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Because it's, again, like, and it's such a fucking amazing send-up to that sort of, like, it, it reminds me of something that's, like, that they someone needed like do with like house or something the tv show where it's like <laughs> the, the ridiculous scene that's in every single episode of house or like most like detective shows where it's like someone makes some random correlation between like some random piece of information that someone says and it's like that like the cliche of like like character blah 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 you're a genius you know it's that thing and yeah like the batman movie definitely does that perfectly oh, and if they do it all the time because yeah. all of the riddler's riddles are like so stupid and they, just, they have the most literal the best one is like what is six ounces and bends the branch on a tree a parrot with a machine gun yeah. <laughs> it's great it's, yeah. it's so good um, and then the other one is there's that scene where they're stuck on the buoy they're magnetized to it by the penguin and they have to get away and the penguin keeps sending the missiles and yeah. first the batman is using his bat communicator to de-arm the, disarm the missiles which is great but then it runs out of battery and so it looks like the missiles are going to hit you see this explosion and then it's Batman and Robin on the boat riding away. Yeah. And, and Robin's like, that poor porpoise. It's like, Robin, that was a noble creature who heroically sacrificed itself to give us time to escape. <laughs> and it's so, you just don't see it. And it's, it's great. so good. Oh, oh my God. That movie is so fucking funny. It does not get anywhere near the credit it deserves. No, that it is. Series. I put it at number four. I stand by that. It could yeah. absolutely be higher. You'll probably see my logic in the top three. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a weird movie to try to rank with these <laughs> others because it's like all these like most of these are you know like some of the others like bad Superman movies that are like kind of comedy esque. Yeah. But it's like most of these are pretty like serious character like dissections of these very like troubled people and stuff. Yeah. And this is just like this ridiculous end up of of spy movies and detective stories and superheroes and everything. I mean, I think you could very easily make the argument it's the best movie on this list yeah, it's just it, in yeah. terms of intent and executing on what it wants to do yeah it's it's a it's an amazing fucking movie people should watch it for sure yeah, absolutely and it's the easiest one to find of the original series yeah. so which is great all right just got a text my brother thomas wants to give a shout out to the podcast oh just tell the audience he says hi that's sweet how then adorable a, then a donut emoji i don't quite understand that but does that even, can an inanimate object 
be an emoji. Like, because inanimate it, objects can't have emoji. emotions. An emoji is an emotion character, Jonathan. Okay. Because as you know, as someone who's also studied some Japanese, G is, means character in yes. Japanese. So emoji. emoji. Yes. Yeah. If don't it... I hope holds no emotions, or I am, like, a really bad fucking person. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to something that is really good. Number three on our list, Superman the Movie from 1978. Okay, this may be a bit low on this top three, but we'll see. Uh-huh. We'll make your own. I agree with the top two, but anyway, we'll see. Superman the Movie, it's a pretty good movie. It's a pretty good movie. I, I think it is the best superhero origin story yes. ever. Maybe tied with Batman Begins, I don't know, but... Superman the movie is so fascinating. It is three movies in one. You have the act on Krypton and Superman getting to Earth. You have Superman going to the big city and becoming a superhero. And then the final act with Lex Luthor. And they are all fairly distinct, but they are all very accomplished. Yeah. And in the middle of it, tying it all down, you've got Christopher Reeves giving one of the best performances ever in a superhero movie. He is Superman in mind, body, and soul. Yeah. And around him, you've got this great cast. You know, Margot Kidder is so good as Lois Lane. And Marlon Brando has such presence as yeah. uh, Jor-El. Jor-El. Yeah. I'm not sure he gave a shit making the movie, but he's no. good in it either yeah. way. And uh, Gene Hackman is such a great Lex Luthor. He's so good. But it really does all tie back to Christopher Reeves. Yeah, And I absolutely. think the whole movie can be summarized in that. It's got great effects, not just for the time. I just think it has great effects. Yes. Uh, I think it's got... It's this great focus on character above everything else. And yet it lets Superman be a hero and, and have heroic things happen. And it managed to be exciting amidst all of that. But also romantic. You know, people make fun of the Can You Read My Mind sequence. That's also just kind of a beautiful, swooningly romantic sequence that yeah. works not in spite of itself. It just kind of works. Yeah, I mean, that whole, like, it's a long scene. But it's a, an amazing scene where he's flying Lois Lane yeah. around the city. Like, that considering how, scene is incredible. Considering how poorly done most superhero romance things are, I mean, yeah. this is this yeah. is very well done. And, yeah, it's got a silly ending, and maybe you have to knock it down a few pegs for that. Yeah, but, but, but in the scope of the movie, the ending doesn't matter. Like, I, I have my fun thing to make fun it, of right. the ending, but... But in the scope of the movie, it doesn't matter, but also thematically, I think it's completely appropriate, because the whole idea yeah. is... I, lo- I know the thing where he turns the Earth around is silly, but the moment before that, where Lois dies, he breaks, and he flies yeah. up and sees the image ah, of his father. Yeah. Oh, he sees the image of his father, and he rejects that, and chooses right, humanity. Yes, yes. That's what Man of Steel was trying to do and didn't do. I mean, yeah. that's... It's so perfect, and it's just, it's a movie, I don't know how much there even is to say, because this movie feels like a towering pillar of superhero cinema in in just the level of, I, I don't know, just grandeur it has, and respect yeah. for the source material. It's it's Shakespearean in some ways, but it's also very funny in moments, it's very comical, but never feels out of place. Um, it's just, it is, it is, as I said, it's a pillar and it's a great movie and it's one that you can revisit many times and it, it never really gets old. And it was very ahead of its time in 1978. Some yeah. ways still is. And yeah, it was the Superman movie we deserved and we got and then never again. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, for me, like Superman, the movie is so a piece with the character. Like it's, I can't even... It's almost like hard for me to even remember specific things from the movie because it's like I can't. It's almost hard to detach. Like, is that something that happened in the movie, or is that something that happened in the, the cartoon, or is that something that happened in like All Star Superman? It's like like Superman the movie is such a perfect representation of that character in a way that like I love the, like this modern stable of superhero movies we've got. And I think they have done an amazing job, pretty like Marvel across the board. And it's like, you know, we, we can we talk about how amazing Robert Downey Jr. is as Tony Stark till the cows come home. 
he is not as good as Tony Stark as Christopher Reeve is as Superman. Like, Christopher Reeve is the most... Because, because also, Superman in Clark Kent is the hardest superhero, I think, actually, like, basically to play. Like, there's... Because... The prevailing opinion on Superman is that Superman is a boring hero. He's not interesting. Nobody likes him. Nobody gives a shit about Superman. Everyone thinks that Superman is lame. And Christopher Reeves, when you look at him on that screen and you, you know, the tagline of the movie is you will believe a man can fly. It's like, but that's like, that's the great tagline, but that's only like the, the tip of the iceberg for me. It's like, you will believe that this man can exist. It's like, you will believe that there is this person that like, is this fundamentally human person that like has all these issues has has moral quandaries that he needs to face and has the most incredible power but needs to understand like find ways to make use of it and to to be a moral person with that kind of power and what it means to actually be a moral and a good person and that's not it like a it's not a sizzly story it's not something that's very exciting most of the time for people and it's not something easy to execute that will interest people. But when you execute it so perfectly, the way that Christopher Reeves did playing the character and the way that Richard Donner did making the movie, like, there is just nothing like it for me. Like, no, and it casts such a shadow that I think this movie is Superman for 99% of people. Yeah. This just is the character. This is what they know. And it casts such a shadow over him cinematically that, honestly, if you want to blame Man of Steel's creative failure in some ways on anything, it's having to overcompensate for... The shadow this movie cast. Yeah. Because Superman Returns got caught in it, and I really like Superman Returns, but it is in this movie's shadow. And Man of Steel forcefully tries to break away. It probably goes too far. But you can see that that has to be so hard to make a Superman movie when this one exists. Yeah, like because it is something where it's like the Superman character as like an icon exists as this sort of moral center for I think me and for like a lot of people. And it's like and it really is this movie and like that version of the character that like emblemizes that in so many ways for me and it's just there are parts of this movie like him being in Kansas and like his in pocket and Jonathan Kidd dying of a heart attack at the beginning of the movie and stuff like that and then burying him and like there are just sequences of this film that like are burned into me you know and that's like so defining and it's obviously you have the musical score with John Williams and, and the, the incredibly iconic theme that goes on top of it and something that's like I can't specifically remember if this scene is from this movie or it might be from Superman 2 but either way, like, it just speaks to something about Christopher Reeve's performance. Is that you, there's that thing that, like, everyone loves to make the stupid fucking joke about Superman. That's like, oh, it's just, like, the glasses. And it's like, nobody... How come no one can tell that Superman is actually Clark Kent? It's just the glasses. That's so stupid. It's like, when I used to believe, say that this movie will make you believe that this person can exist. I mean that, like, anyone who makes that joke should shut the fuck up and just watch this movie and watch Christopher Reeve's performance. Because there is, in particular, there's a scene. Again, I don't remember if it's quite from this movie or it might be from Superman 2. But it's where uh, he's in a hotel room with Lois. And Lois is basically going into a room to change. And she's sort of dazed. And Clark is sort of... Contemplating the idea of, and this, this is probably this is Superman, Superman too. too. Yeah. But, anyways, like, again, it just speaks to his performance. He's contemplating the idea of revealing himself to Lois. And it's like he, he's bumbling Clark Kent, and then Lois goes into this other room, and the Superman, or Clark Kent, takes off his glasses, like, stands up straight, just straightens his shoulder. Then, the, like, a bit of the theme plays in the background, and you see him, he's like, sort of like smiles, nods to himself, taps the glasses on his hands, and he just says, Lois. 
I have something I need to tell you. I'm, and then it's like Lois comes into the room and he like, changes his mind, puts the glasses back on. It's like, uh, Mrs. Lane. And it's like it's that transformation. It's like two minutes of footage. It's on YouTube. And this is actually this, – this sequence of footage is so good. I used it in a PowerPoint presentation for a presentation I made in college on the fucking Friar's Tale from the Canterbury's Tale. It's like read that story and figure out how I made the connection. But – like it's it's such an amazing sequence and again it's like it's the most crystallized version of it which is why it, like I, it comes to mind but it's present throughout his entire performance of that there is such a clear divide between how he carries himself how he speaks everything about him when he is Superman and he lets himself just be Superman and when he's be, being Clark Kent like four people around him and like playing the Clark Kent character. For Lois Lane and for the people at his job so that, like, they don't suspect him. It's very much that style of that performance. Like, if you can't buy that that Lois Lane would not understand that, that Clark Kent and Superman are different people, if you think this, like, of course she would just be able to tell because it's just the glasses. It is so much more than the glasses. And, and but both of those people are inside him, too, in the yes. Yes, yes, exactly. Clark Kent There's, is not an act. That's a moment of fear for him when he puts the glasses back on. Yeah, and the, it's him, like, dissembling for some of the people around him so that, like, right. in those moments where it's like he's in the in-between. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, you know, that's the reason the, the Quentin Tarantino speech in Kill Bill is wrong yeah. about Clark Kent being an act. It's it's just as organic a part of him. It's his, in some ways, it's his fears and anxieties and yeah. things, but also his human frailties and whatnot, but he has to have both of those sides. Yeah. And it's something those first two movies get so innately. Yeah. That and the real Clark Kent is like him back on the farm with right. with, with Ma Kent and stuff like that. Like that's where the real person is. And, and the, it's him his like small town, smallville fears against like the big city is what the Clark Kent working at the Daily Planet is so much of the time. Right. Which feels very appropriate. There's just such a scope to this movie visually, emotionally, narratively uh, there really has never been anything like it. This was a very tough one to rank. This is when it gets to rankings the best Superman versus the best Batman. Yeah. I go with Batman just because I personally like the character more. But I could also argue if I'm going a little more objectively, this might be number one on the list. I don't yeah. know how you would do it. But I mean, For me, like Superman the movie is a movie that like when you watch it, it's just like watching the movie is like wrapping yourself up in a warm blanket. You know, yeah. it's just It's got that feeling to it that is so intrinsic to the Superman character that's like it's it's an incredibly like remarkable thing yes. like, there's never been another superhero adaptation that's quite like it because there's no other superhero that is quite like Superman as much as he was the original model for the the archetype you know yes so yeah Superman the movie but it's like we're I'm not going to like we're not going to do the ending spiel here because we did that on a podcast a long time ago but like the ending is the, the idea of drive flying around the world backwards is really dumb that doesn't matter, like, really. When you're actually talking about that movie, it's so much more than that. Yeah. So let's talk about another great movie. Yeah. Number two is Batman, Mask of the Phantasm. Okay. From 1993. The animated, the only one animated one on this list, because for some goddamn reason, even though comic books are animated, it's only, this This is the one. This is yeah. the one animated superhero movie. The, um, that, that has a theatrical release. That has a theatrical yeah. release, right. And uh, this was the animated movie version of the TV show. Yes. And I know this is a movie that holds a special place in both of our hearts. Yes. It has a lot of great things about it. But you've done such good spiels on this one in the past, Sean. I might just pass it to you right away. Oh, man. Well, like, so, I mean, because we already sort of, like, hinted at it earlier when we were talking about, like, the romance stuff with Batman. That, yeah, this movie has... I think one of the things that's most amazing about the movie is that it's basically an original story. Like, it's not... 
And by that, I mean, it's not just like most of like the cartoon episodes were technically original stories. But it was like, you know, it was Mr. Freeze's origin story or it's like, hey, this is a Joker episode. It's a Poison Ivy episode. Mask of the Phantasm introduces an entirely new character of the Batman mythos. That's never really, as far as I know, been taken up again, which is probably appropriate. But it's also kind of disappointing because it's a great character of this Phantasm who is a phantasmic apparition person that's going around and, and basically killing mob leaders. It's like and I'm watching the beginning of Daredevil season two. All of a sudden, I feel like I'm making the connection. That's basically the Punisher. <laughs> Anyways, that's a different thing. And then at the same time, as this phantasm comes into town and is killing these mob leaders, and Batman starts investigating that as getting his detective on in a way that he doesn't in any other theatrical Batman movies, as, the, as is appropriate for the Batman character. This woman comes into his life as well. That's connected to his past. So there's basically this romance he had when he was in college, I guess. And 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 the movie is structured in such a way that is kind of like actually Batman Begins. Also, that probably is like influence of this movie in terms of the structure, where it, it flashes back periodically between Bruce, like in his college days, like his relationship with this woman when he's still very troubled about his his past and like trying to sort of figure out this Batman thing that he's just kind of like getting his teeth into a little bit, and then starting this relationship with this woman that is making him feel compelled to like feel this like oh I can actually like have a life like I don't have to do this like vigilante crusader thing that's not like I don't have to live as a sad depressed person who's completely alone like I can have something else and then the woman she leaves and then Bruce falls and basically becomes Batman which is one of the fascinating things about the story is that it depicts the origin of Batman as being basically his tragic downfall as a Bruce Wayne's tragic downfall as a human and so then as the phantasm comes into town in the present timeline, this woman comes back into Bruce's white life as well. And that's basically the setup for the movie. And what's remarkable about the film is that, again, it's that completely original story. So it doesn't feel like it is chained in any way to, like, the canonical Batman mythos. You know, it's not like the way that Batman Begins feels like it is chained. Not chained, but, like, so inspired that in some ways it feels like it's shackled to the tradition that started with Batman Year One and that that's what the Batman origin story here is. Like, you've never seen a, a story dealing with Batman's origin like this. You've never seen another Batman story that deals with the idea of him having that point of no return in a way of, like, or where he felt he reached the point of no return... And then didn't realize it wasn't. And, like, is wavering, like, right on the precipice of when he can be Batman and when he can't be Batman anymore. And that that relationship representing that. And there is that there is that incredibly heartbreaking scene where it's the raining and he goes to his parents' gravestone. He basically yes. says, like, can I have a life? Like, is this okay? It, it, like, that, like... Kevin Conroy's best moment. Yes. It's, like, in... And then, obviously, then you have at the end of the movie, like, in the last act, Mark Hamill's Joker comes in as a, like, element of insane chaos well before the Joker was that in The Dark Knight. Because it's, like, he's... Not, because it's, like, he represents, like, that, that, that bubbling insanity underneath Gotham the whole time while the, the drama is playing out between Bruce and, and his, like, former love. And then, like, and that, all that stuff where fucking Joker is at that run down like abandoned playground and stuff and he kidnaps the phantasm and everything and and then the whole end of the movie where it's burning down around him and Batman's struck he's striking the Joker and the Joker's giving his insane last laugh and everything 
Like, oh, I mean, everything it, about this movie is just incredible. Like, just everything. I don't I even know. know how to talk about it because everything's amazing. No, I mean, that climax is the thing that always sticks in my mind the most because. Yeah. And there's lots, you referenced some of the other scenes, like him at his parents' grave. But that ending is, just spoil, it's an old movie, I can spoil it. Yeah. The Phantasm is his girlfriend. Yes. Uh, she has been turned this way because of the death of her father, etc., etc. But the ending is Batman, the Phantasm, and the Joker. And basically down to Batman trying to stop her from putting on her own point of no return. Yeah. Um, where he, she's going to basically kill the Joker. She's yeah. got him and she's... And the end of the movie is very ambiguous because it's the Joker gives. I mean, Mark Hamill. My favorite Mark Hamill laugh is is this movie, yeah. his last laugh, where he just realizes what's happening and he just breaks down and he's getting strangled by the phantasm and they both disappear and that's it. Yeah, you never. I mean, in the actual like continuity of the animated series, you almost have to assume he's dead. I yeah. mean, that that's the it for the Joker and that for Batman, he's kind of just emotionally broken at this point because it's all about those points of no return and that he can't save her. She can't save the, the Joker's way past gone, and it all reflects back on him. Yeah. Then this is it. And it's, it is one of the best Batman stories ever told. Yeah. Way better than The Dark Knight Returns. And <laughs> yeah. um, just if I want to make a controversial statement there. And, uh, you know, and it's got all the great things about the animated series, which is to both of us kind of the definitive version of Batman. Yeah, definitely. You know, you've, you've got Kevin Conroy, you've got Mark Hamill, you've got that unbelievably beautiful art yeah. all done on the black paper and stuff like that. You've got that great um, musical score. It's it's just a fantastic movie, and it's never really, I think, gotten the credit it deserves. It no. still only yeah. has this one kind of crappy DVD release. Um I would love them to restore it at some point and do a Blu-ray or high-def release of some form because it deserves it. Um, but yeah, it is so good. Yeah, and it is something where it's like, I feel like I've been hammering on this point, but it is when you're a big comic book fan, there is something about actual originality in like <laughs> comic books that's like basically gone. Like It just almost doesn't exist, you know, like... They like to point to a live action superhero movie that is like invented a character. Like there isn't one. Like they they and for like you know I'm not asking them to always invent characters because usually they're probably they're not going to do a very good job at it. But there's something about that that's almost kind of mind blowing in a way that's very weird. But as a comic book fan, it's like you're watching it. It's like there's actually a mystery to who the Phantasm is. Like, it's not a huge mystery, but it's like, it's a part of that movie. It's like, you can't do that with any other fucking Batman villain. Like, you can't have a mystery in Batman almost anymore because it's like, you know it's going to be one of these five fucking dudes and probably there's going to be a massive calling card in the first scene that's like, oh, there's a big question mark on the wall. I wonder who did it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about it that the animated series is responsible for the last major comic character creation I think we have, which is Harley Quinn. Harley Quinn, Quinn. Yeah, yeah, that's true. If we want to put that in sad, sobering terms. But yeah, it, no, you make a good point. And I feel like one of the things that I think both of us are so apathetic about Batman v Superman for is it looks like they're just doing Dark Knight Returns in terms of that fight. Yeah. I have zero interest in that. I don't oh, like yeah. that story to begin with. It's been done to death. And it makes no sense in this universe they're setting up because you can't go beyond that. You yeah. can't have that. It also, like, stuff about that story politically has not aged well oh. at fucking all in the America facing down the barrel of Donald Trump. Yes. <laughs> it's like that is not a pleasant story to go back to. No, not at all. So, Mask of the Phantasm, you get a gold star. Fuck yeah. Yeah, like, if anyone listening to this podcast has not seen this movie, like, go watch this movie like it's and it's something like you said we said at the top of the discussion 
like you said, with like this is the only theatrical animated superhero movie. And the, how tragic that is that that's the sort of the state of American culture that like 2D animation just can't be a thing when it's like it's so beautiful in this movie and it's it's absolutely what it needs to be and the only way you can do Batman as a character that way that well is probably just through 2D animation because it's the closest relationship it has to the original source material obviously like a comic book animated is like just flipping through a comic book really fast yeah all right my number one is the Dark Knight okay yeah yeah I like look I revisit The Dark Knight probably once a year, and I've actually gotten to a point where I wait until someone's showing it in a theater. I don't go back to the... The the Blu-ray doesn't look very good for starters. I don't think it represents the movie all that well, but I also think it loses something at home. Sure, yeah. Um, But, you know, it came out in 2008. I've probably seen it at least once a year since then, and I always wait for the luster to fall off it in some way because it is obviously a very famous movie. It's a very... It's already a classic. Yeah. It's already very influential, clearly. Um, I don't like all its influence, but that's not the movie's fault necessarily. Um, And I always wait for me to find a fault with things I hadn't found before. And really, the things I didn't like are fairly minor, and they've stayed that way. And the things I like build and build every time I see it. I think it is one of the great movies of the 2000s. I think it is an absolute just juggernaut of an experience where it is a... Two and a half hours sustained heart attack of shit going wrong and shit going wrong. And Batman at the heart of this kind of just trying to stop the bleeding. And Christopher Nolan, the the technical accomplishment of this movie. I talked about The Dark Knight Rises. And in some ways, The Dark Knight Rises won up to this in the technical area. But in some ways, it didn't. Because there is just a rhythm and a flow to The Dark Knight that I find Fascinating. I think it is one of the best edited movies of all time. If you look at how they construct these elaborate montages that just cascade on top of one another, and it's hard to say where one sequence ends and another begins, especially in the best section of the movie, which is the capture of the Joker to the interrogation to the whole thing with him setting up the thing with Rachel and Harvey Dent and Harvey Dent becoming Two-Face. That whole stretch is just like you forget to breathe. Even if you, and I know every beat of it, I know every line, I know every shot, it still hits me. I just think it is a utter masterpiece of a movie, top to bottom. I think it is thematically on point. It knows what it wants to say. I really like that it does both the Joker and Two-Face because I think that's um, a reflection that is very smart and, yeah. and says something. And I love the final message, which is, it's such an interesting interrogation of that idea that Batman doesn't kill because in the end, he does. He kills Harvey Dent. Yeah. And it really is a no-win scenario. Like, but it's 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 not it's not like Man of Steel. It's not yeah, him no, killing Zod. Yeah. It's so much more interesting than that. And that's why it feels like that has to be the end to this version of Batman. It's why The Dark Knight Rises was always kind of a bad idea, no matter what story you told, is I don't know if you can go past that point because that's Batman hitting his nth degree. That's yeah. the furthest yeah, he yeah, can yeah. go. And it's dark, it's also kind of weirdly hopeful. It is, I think, a very smart movie. It was so of the zeitgeist, as much as The Dark Knight Rises did not understand the politics of yeah, its time, yeah. I think The Dark Knight does and did and continues to in some ways as, you know, uh, surveillance and things like that keep coming into the conversation. Yeah. You know, we've got the whole uh, Apple versus the FBI thing right now. Batman's dilemma in this one is a really interesting one because yeah. it is that trade-off of there is no easy answer in, like, the Apple versus the FBI thing right now. I personally support Apple in that. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not like you don't see where the FBI is coming from. So yeah. yeah. It's, it's safety and security, and you feel Batman having that same pull within himself. And I don't even think that's the most interesting part of the movie. It's probably one of the least interesting parts. And then you have Heath Ledger. Yeah. You can't talk about this movie without him. 
maybe the best performance in any of these is for Villains Go, um, and one of the best, I just think, in American cinema of the last 20 years. It is absolutely electric. There's never been anything quite like it. He was fucking possessed, and it almost feels like he was destined to almost just leave this earth after it and yeah, just become yeah, a legend because, you know, it is. it was the performance was legendary before we even saw it, and it felt completely earned. You know, I still get terrified in some of his scenes, even though I know what does and doesn't happen. Yeah. It just love this movie. So that's why it's my number one. Um, these top couple were hard to rank. When I do this kind of thing, because my number two and one are the same as when I did my top ten superhero movies list a couple years ago. Yeah. And I always wonder if I should put Dark Knight somewhere else. And it really is just hard overhead. And I have plenty of things in my head to you know defend it. But I just that's where it kind of lives with me. Uh, so, yeah. That's... Yeah. For me, like, I've, I've just been thinking about how I would rank these top three. And I feel like, like, weirdly, like, Superman the movie has, like, grew on me really hard after I watched it after Man of Steel came out. And, like, obviously, like, was thinking about the Superman character a lot. I think, like, honestly, now I'd probably rank these movies Dark Knight 3, Phantasm 2, and Superman the movie number one. Because for me, like, like I think, like... I don't need to, like, go on about the things about The Dark Knight that are amazing. Like, you did a very good job, and, like, everyone knows what's amazing about that movie. But I have always had my issues, and we've definitely talked about this on the podcast before, with pieces of that movie that just, for me, don't work, where there's a weird thing with the pacing where I feel like that movie stops, like, three times over its running time and feels like, well, this is the end of this movie, and then it just keeps on going, and then stops, and then it's like, okay, then we're doing all this Two-Face stuff again. It's like... That element of that movie, it's like it's problematic for me in that it's like I, it's hard for me to describe why I feel that way. But I've seen the movie probably four or five times at this point, and every single time I've watched it, I have that exact same sensation. And I always forget about it too because that first time it happens is like right after like all like like you're saying like all the amazing stuff at the beginning of the movie, basically with like all like the introduction of the Joker and then them trying to capture him and all that stuff and then the interrogation. And then after that, it's like it feels like. This movie should basically be over, even though that's only like forty-five something minutes into the movie at that point. And so it's like this is that's such an exciting point. I always forget that that's like how I feel about this movie. And then like I get that sensation again. I'm like, oh right, this is like this is what this movie does to me every single time I watch it. I get that sensation basically two or three times over the course of it. It's like there's still so much about it that is amazing, and like with the Heath Ledger performance in particular is. Just there's there is absolutely nothing else like it, but at the same time, there's something about that movie that just rubs me the wrong way. Even though it's like I would absolutely put it at number three, like it's absolutely like the best live action Batman movie that's been made without a doubt in my mind, and it's one of the best movies that's come out in the 2000s. There's still something about it that just like it's like the like like rubs me like in the back of my head or something. It's like what is this like what does this movie do? And that's what okay. are you doing? That's, yeah. that's what movies do. We just there are things, and I think it's a movie that is experientially powerful enough that it's bound to just you feel things watching it and if what yeah. you feel is this is when I kind of want to tap out you know yeah. you feel that it. you can't even and as you say it's hard to put into words yeah but yeah no and I get that ranking this this it was, it was it's always tough to figure out especially now when I'm adding Superman in the mix where do yeah. we put these things um, but I do think those top three are kind of to me clearly the top three yes without ways. a doubt like yeah. there's no there's no question in my mind okay yeah those are the top three yeah other than okay, maybe the the Adam West Batman movies like muscling in there in some strange way. Those are the top four. Yeah, those, those are definitely, definitely yes. Yeah, people say that those are the top four. So, however you order them, 
Well, good. This was fun to go yeah. through these movies. And it's, it's, it feels cathartic. It feels like we needed to cleanse that out of us in preparation for seeing whatever the fuck Batman v Superman ends up being. Let's talk about that. Oh, right. Let's, Let's talk play about this that. game. All right, Batman v Superman. First off, I just want to make predictions. Okay. I mean, you have to put money. What do you think the odds that this is a bad movie? <laughs> I hate to play this game, but oh, I just don't see any hope with this one. Yeah. I. Is it 90-10? Is it 80-20? What is this? Honestly, the, the calculation I'm playing right now in my head is how much do I want to feel like if this does on some off chance be a really good movie, do I feel like I'm sticking my foot in my mouth right now? Like, yeah. I'm just going to not comment. Like, okay. that way I don't feel stupid a week from now when you talk about it. I will say that based on the trailers and the marketing, and in particular coming out of Man of Steel and hearing the way that, like, Zack Snyder and his crew have talked about this movie and their influences for it, obviously coming as we talked about with The Dark Knight Returns, I am not particularly hopeful with this movie, especially after we got the trailer with the Doomsday reveal at the end. Like, that felt to me like that was the main indicator of, like, if the, that trailer indicates where the plot of that movie is going accurately, I do not think it will be a good movie. I, like, I think it will be a pretty bad movie. It might be I, a catastrophically bad movie. It's just the basics of, one, it has everything I hate about certain interpretations of Batman. Yes. Batman obviously being a character we both feel strongly about. It has a lot of... It, it's, it looks like they just don't even know what they're doing with Superman anymore. No. Like, it, um, it almost looks like Superman's not even fucking in the movie at yes, some point, you know? I, with, the, with the way uh, the trailers are. And so those things just fill me with dread. I don't like the idea of doing Batman v Superman and making it dark and serious in the first place because yeah. I'm okay with you making a movie called Batman vs. Superman, but I feel like the crux of it has to be them becoming friends, and I don't see how you can do that if you have the scene where it's, remember the person who fucking beat you. Yeah. You can't, you can't come back from that. Superman yeah. and Batman aren't going to be buddies after that. Yeah, I'm there's sorry. no world's finest after that no. happens, after Batman is the greatest asshole in the history of the planet. Yes, so uh, it's just a lot of stuff that I am just inherently uninterested in, and then those trailers, those that it is the worst marketing campaign for a major Hollywood movie on this level I have seen in years. Yeah, those, those trailers are spectacular. And it's not just that like each of the trailers have been pretty fucking bad in their own way. It is also, like you said earlier in the podcast, it's they feel like they are com- trailers are completely different movies. And in a way where it's like they kind of like are course correcting after each trailer where it's like yeah. so people criticize like the first trailer for something. Then it's like they change it for like the second trailer. And then everyone like the complains about you gave away the third act of your movie in your trailer with the Doomsday thing. You should have done that. And then the next trailer is all like Batman being cool. And then just a bunch of really quickly edited action that doesn't show you anything. It's like but that doesn't. You can't do that after you had the second trailer that gives away the third act. I didn't forget that that happened, WB Marketing. You can't just, like, pretend that that reveal never happened in the next trailer, you know? Yes. It's so. like it's like completely different people, like, edited all those trailers and none of them talked to each other. Yes. But now, what do we know, Sean? We know Batman is mad at Superman because one of his buildings fell down yes. and he's mad about the whole destruction. It is the same basic premise as Gamera 3 Revenge of Iris where you cut back to the events of Gamera 2000 Guardian of the Universe where you find out there were, there was a girl in the city where Gamera was fighting Gauss at the end of the movie and that her family was killed when Gamera crushed into a building and so she wants to get revenge on Gamera. It is that that first trailer shows a scene that is basically exactly fucking that from Camera 3 Revenge of Iris, nice. which is a, going to be a better movie than Batman v Superman. 
Uh, okay, so we got that. Superman is a god now. He has legions of followers. Yes, the red coat capes are coming or whatever. Whatever that means. I, I mean, just in the visuals where he's like being reached up by like yeah, he has some sort of like statue cult. at the center of Metropolis. And other than that, we actually don't know a lot. He's he's testifying for the Senate. There's something about a Senate hearings and an angry senator. Yes. All right. I, I feel like that's in like since Iron Man, that's been in every superhero yes. movie trailer. Uh, Lex Luthor is in it. He well. Has, is he really? We'll is it? That's what he's being called. So we'll just Mark for a short Zuckerberg. Hand. Yeah. Uh, so you getting compared to that? The Mark Zuckerberg movie is subtle. Yeah. All right. Yeah, anyway, um, so Lex Luthor's in it. He's got. He's doing something behind the scenes. He's got General Zod's body, and he's making Doomsday. We yeah. know all that. I know. I don't completely forgot about the Zod part of the Doomsday yeah, yeah. thing, but yeah. Uh, Wonder Woman is in it. Yes. And we know she's also going to be in there as Diana Prince. Has a very badly animated jump at Doomsday yes. at some point in the fight. And also, we're going to have to work in Flash, Cyborg, and Aquaman Fuck. at a minimum. Fuck. So, I'll start. Okay. Okay. So, it's opening well, logos. No, we should also say it's like we have like Alfred. Oh, Alfred. Presumably, okay. we have like Lois Lane. Like, I just yeah. want to like shore up our supporting cast. Okay. Has there been any news about like. Perry White's in it. Perry, the case of Perry White. Oh, there's also a little thing where Superman, I forgot, Clark Kent goes after Batman in print. Okay, Remember yes, yes, thing? because there's that scene. There's also at some point Batman is in the Middle East in like like war gear as if Frank Miller was actually able to make the Holy Terror graphic novel he made. Have star Batman instead of DC saying, you can't do that, Frank Miller. You are fucking crazy to him having yeah. to make a Batman knockoff. All right, so I think that covers it. Yes, that basically covers what we've seen from the trailers. Okay, so we open. Yes. We're going to start. It's going to kind of... I'm guessing the first shot is black, and there's a bunch of screams and stuff. We fade in. It's the destruction of Metropolis. Yeah, so Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is, like, driving into the city trying to figure shit out. And he gets there just after. And we, we see cutaways to the events of Man of Steel where Batman is fighting. Superman, Superman is fighting and Zod. Zod are fighting. And his, his building, like, starts coming down. Bruce Wayne does what he can to rescue people. We see that shot of him in the trailer clutching the little girl. Yeah. I'm guessing he doesn't know that little girl. No, and, no. And, but Bruce Wayne had, like, family or something in there. And they're dead. You know what? Bruce Wayne retired. He got married. His family's in there. They're all dead. That's my call. No, that's, none of that happened. Like, because Bruce Wayne's a loner. He's always a loner. But You're assuming how, they know what they're doing in this movie, but yes. There's no way. Like, Zack Snyder has way too much of a boner for Frank Miller Batman. Okay. It's like, Frank Miller Batman does not have family relationships. Frank Miller Batman chains Robin up in the basement and makes him feed off of rats. Okay? Good point. It's like, what my question is for here... Do we have any cuts away now, later in the movie, or maybe don't do it at all, to some version, our version of this Batman's origin story? Does perhaps yes, the destruction clear. of the city makes him like, and he like sees like a girl, like that girl get crushed or something, and it makes him flash back to uh, like the movie theater and his parents getting shot, or maybe they even recreate the they 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 undo a little bit of Batman mythology and say it's like maybe. A similar sort of disaster happened in the past with like a hurricane or something that's more of a natural disaster that killed his parents as well. I think that's going to happen. I don't think that'll be intercut at the beginning here. I think we'll get the Batman origin story flashbacks later. They, it, okay. they there are flashbacks because they're two actors have been cast. Okay, and they're in the movie and and there's a shot of that in the trailers. I can't wait to see the Batman origin story again. That's a great idea, Jonathan. I think to retread the Batman origin story again, one of the most well known origin stories. For any character, so I'm great. Okay, yeah. So let's put it in the movie, but let's put it later. Okay. So I think we cut the titles on Batman, like Bruce Wayne. He's looking up at these, you know, gods fighting, and his like eyes, you know, he he like squints, like 
motherfucker. Yeah. And we cut to Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Okay. It's like Batman v Superman, then like <laughs> Dawn of Justice like, like yeah. fizzles in. Okay. Yeah. So we're done with that. Now, do we then cut to... I think we're going to have to go to a Superman scene next, right? Yes. Okay. So, in fact, I'm going to guess it's the Senate hearings. And this is where we're introduced to Lex Luthor, to that senator character. There's a scene with them. We get that line about power can't be innocent, whatever. Yeah. And then I think Superman comes in, and that's our first sight of him, is testifying at that hearing. And then I think that's going to be... Batman is watching it in the Batcave on TV, and that's when we get first shots of, like, Batman proper and Alfred. Yeah, that's when Alfred comes in and starts talking to him, yeah, like, like with, like, yeah. what Batman's ideas are. Like, maybe that's where you're also getting some of the, like, Batcave shots of, like, Jason Todd's Robin yeah. outfit that was in some of the trailers. Yeah, and so you just get this sense of, like, Batman's been dormant for a while, but now he's feeling like he's got to do something. Yeah. It's like, it's rising inside of him. Yeah, and we're saying this is like real time set after Man of Steel, so it's been like three years. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I think that's probably right. Yeah. Okay, so we got all that. I think then we're going to go back to Metropolis. Stuff is going on there. I feel like Batman- we we're going to have to get like some Clark Kent... Like, right. like with Lois Lane and Perry White. Like, yeah. you need to get that early on in the movie because I think it's going to be hard to cut away to it later. Right. So I think we get a little bit of that. And I think the next scene is that scene in the trailers where they're at that ball together, like that, that event. And it's because it's where yeah. Clark and Bruce meet for the first time and that Lex is throwing it. Yeah. And so Clark is there to cover it. Yeah. So, Bruce, be, so let's say before that, when they're at, when he's still at the Daily Planet, like, that's where we set up that this is going to happen. Yes. And we get a conversation between. Uh, Clark and Lois maybe a little bit because Lois knows in this continuity that Clark is Superman obviously so like maybe they have like a certain discussion that's setting up some of like the Batman stuff of like oh Batman's been dormant for a while and like the the civilian's perspective on Batman yeah. and then we have Perry White calling Clark in and saying it's like Bruce Wayne's coming into the city he's like at this this one gala event and we, we need a reporter over there to cover it uh, we're sending you Clark I think that's I think yeah. that's dead on. That's what's going to happen. I don't know why. I, like my Perry White doesn't sound like the Perry White from Man of Steel. Lord, that's not Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> that's not Lawrence Fishburne. That's okay. <laughs> deal with that later. Only Lawrence Fishburne can do Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah, that's, that's a very sure. good point. Uh, all right, so we're, we have that. They go to the gala, and Lex Luthor's there. He's annoying. <laughs> and we have Bruce and Clark meet. And I think Bruce has gone into the city. He's gone to Metropolis specifically, like scope out the Superman thing. He yeah. wants to like get a feeling for this, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Like and it's and maybe like. Okay, now I was going to say, like, maybe Lex Luthor, like, I don't know how much Lex Luthor knows yet, so, like, let's, but, like, it would be really fucking stupid if he had any idea at this point who Superman or Batman were, if he knew their secret identity, so we're not going to say that he knows that. No, but he is doing something behind the scenes. Yes, well, he's obviously, he's, ultimately, I think his plan is that he wants to just rule the world. Yes. But before that, he wants to take control of Metropolis, and Superman was a bit of a scare for him, and he wants to assert, sort of, like, his dominance as a human being and to do that he feels he he can acquire the Kryptonian stuff with the Zod to make his own Kryptonian monster as a deterrent for Superman and but ultimately he's just doing some business stuff behind the scenes to try to like you know maybe eventually at some point he'll destroy California after he buys a bunch of real estate uh Okay. But that's, so this, that's for later. But, but this is his character motivation. Is yeah. He wants to turn the public against Superman. Yes, he wants to turn public opinion against Superman. Which means, I think, in that gala scene, he's going to get Bruce Wayne on his own and talk to him about Superman and Yes, because way. he knows that Bruce Wayne's probably very public about not liking Superman. And I feel like Clark Kent is maybe, in a kind of like an ethically irresponsible way, maybe writing articles for the Daily Planet that are pretty pro-Superman. Yes. And he's got a bit of a pro-Superman agenda. And so I think that's where a bit of a conflict... Like springs at that that gala event where they all 
congeal and meet together, and they then like Superman, the Clark Kent is knows that that Bruce Wayne doesn't like Batman or doesn't like Superman, and obviously Bruce Wayne knows that Clark Kent is way into Superman, and so they're kind of button heads a bit. Yes. As then Lex Luthor comes in to sort of throw some fuel on the fire, as he's wanted. Exactly, I think that's right. So where do they go from there? Well, I think we're going to have to have the next part is where Clark in the paper is going to try to discredit the Batman because he has an ideological difference with Bruce Wayne. He doesn't know Bruce Wayne is Batman yet, yeah. but he knows that Bruce Wayne supports the Batman and he feels like that's wrong. So he's going to try to put down Batman and put up Superman. Again, ethically compromised, but that's yeah. our least of our concerns in this movie. And so he's doing that. And meanwhile, I think Bruce, what's he doing? He's preparing to maybe, I don't think he wants to go fight Superman outright. I don't think that's his first yeah. instinct. But, Wait, hold on. I've got. I've. I've just. I'm getting some ideas here. I'm thinking about some of the footage we've seen from the trailers. I'm specifically thinking that we've seen Holy Terror Batman, and we have seen Superman, in like like Batman chained up or whatever, and like Superman walking through that underground thing. What if we have like there's like some sort of nondescript war going on in some sort of nondescript, very nonspecific Middle Eastern country, and. What if, like, part of, like, the Superman thing is, like, what if the American government's trying to, like, get Superman to maybe intervene? And, like, part of, like, the early conflict for the Superman-Kent character is him kind of asking these personal questions about how far is too far for himself to exert his power and influence around the world. Okay, okay. And so maybe he's, like, doing some stuff in the Middle East, maybe, and, and maybe, like, Batman's seeing that and thinking, is, like, this is... Like, I've got him now. Like, this is too far. I, we can turn this against him, and I know, like, this is not good. And it's like, I'm going to take this motherfucker down, and I have to, like, do my Batman thing and investigate it first. So, like, I, how, so Batman goes to the Middle East? Yeah, how are you feeling about that? Possible. I also just want to breach the thing. All that imagery might be a dream sequence. It's I, very I, possible. I, I, I know that for sure. And our whole plot will decide... We'll but I'm having a really hard time coming up with something that can happen that makes Batman specifically want to go after Superman right now. Okay, right? okay. I like that. Yeah, no. I also want to backtrack a little bit at that gala. Diana Price is at that gala, right? Prince. Okay, yeah. She's Diana that's, Price, yeah. That's where we meet her. Like, she's... before. No one knows she's Wonder Woman yet. I mean, we do. But they don't. And she's right, got to be yes. there to set her up, right? Because yes. I think the whole thing is she's going to be like a love interest of Bruce Wayne's, but he doesn't get that she's one step ahead of him. Yeah. And she's like hundreds of years old and knows all this stuff, and then she'll come back later. But I just want to set that up. Okay. Yeah, all right. So, yeah. so Batman's off in the Middle East while this is going on. Okay. So right. we're going with that? You're okay with that? Why not? Okay. Sure. Let's, okay, let's do that. We're turning into the skin. Because I'm finding, like, because you're with me, right? Like, like, I'm just trying to think of how, what, what do we do that gets... That has something for Superman to do that, like, is an interesting character conflict for him, and then also gives Batman a reason to go after Superman. I'm, yes. I, I'm like, legitimately, I'm not coming up with anything other than that. I, I think that, yeah, because if it's in the moment, I don't think Batman would just go punch Superman thinking you did something bad in the past. Batman would probably want to yeah. talk with him first. But, like, but obviously, Superman, Superman is... needs to do something that incites Batman to think it's time I need to take this dude out, right? Exactly. And I think, you know, you have that speech, that scene in the movie where Batman says to Alfred, if we have even a 1% chance that he's our enemy, we oh, can yeah, Like the stupidest bit of logic yeah. anyone has ever said ever in the history of mankind that's like... That's not how logic and reason works, Batman. I thought you were supposed to be a smart person. But anyway, I think that's when he's realizing all the Middle East stuff. Right? Did, Batman does realize, of course, that like if you use that logic during the Cold War, the entire human race would be completely extinct, right? Yes. Like, you're stupid, Batman. Anyways, but you're right. Yes. Like, he does say that's that so that, that we have to put that in our outline. We can't just yeah. cut it. 
No, but that's in there, and I think that's around that time, and I think he, right, Alfred is trying to get him not to fly off to the Middle East, but Yes, because Alfred knows that Superman's going to kick your fucking ass. Like, this yeah. is a ridiculous setup for a plot okay. line. So, Al, so, okay, so Batman goes to the Middle East, he's fighting all these people. Yeah. What's he, so is he fighting Superman's troops? I think that's right. Like, I, like it's hard to, to, like, get a sense of what's really going on there, but maybe, like, I think, like... I want to say that, like, maybe there's some sort of, like, rebellion going on in some nondescript, very nonspecific Middle Eastern country, and that we're supposed to be rooting for the the rebels, like Rambo 3, except for that in Rambo 3, the rebels... You Turned know, out to be Al-Qaeda. Yeah, yeah, so... Maybe it's, to be fair, there's a lot of movies from that period where that's the problem. Yes, yeah. Anyway, yes, so we've got that. Uh, so he's there, and I think at some point Superman comes in and like captures Batman, just like does yeah. a tap. You're dead. You're 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 knocked out. Yeah. And then we have that scene where Batman, okay, he's chained up in the basement. Superman is like not an official part of the military, but the military respects him. So when Superman comes in, they bow to him. Yeah. Which yeah. is still creepy, but whatever. And then you have the shot in the trailer where he fucking unmasks Batman. So yeah. I think Superman figures out that Bruce Wayne is Batman, and that's going to freak out Batman even more. Yeah. And Superman, I think, probably just gives him the speech of like. Stop now. It's, uh, I'm going to let you go this time, but you can't do this anymore. Bad Batman. That kind of thing, right? Yeah. And, of, although now the more we're talking about this, the more I'm convinced that that footage from the trailer is absolutely from a dream sequence because there's no way they're doing any of this stuff. Okay. But if they are, let's just go with it. Yeah. Okay. Let's just Because it's actually, I think, a way more interesting idea than... Yeah. I, I'm just going to say now for the record, I think probably what actually happens is like Lex Luthor is just planting, like is like an Iago-like figure, is planting ideas in Bruce Wayne's ear and then like Bruce Wayne has a dream where that stuff happens where Superman's going too far and then Superman finds out who Batman is. Even though Superman... He knows. Like, he can see through your fucking mask. Like, you fucking idiot. You're supposed to be able to do your research. Like, who gives a shit if he takes your mask off? But, like, that freaks Batman out, and then Batman has a pissy fit and goes after Superman like a dumbass. I think that's what's going to happen, because I think Superman tries to de-escalate in that moment, but Batman is not taking that shit. He's even more scared of Superman. Yeah. So when they get back to Metropolis, that's when we get our... There's going to be at least two fights, because in the trailer you'll notice there's one where Batman's just in the Batsuit, and then he's in the metallic Batsuit. Right, So okay. Bat- Batman thinks Superman's gone too far, and I think this leads to their first fight, the one where he's in the Batmobile and Superman stops him. Yes. And I think he loses that one. Yeah, so so yeah, so what happens is okay, so let's scrap all the stuff for the stuff because now I can't like go back. So we're not doing the Middle East thing. We're going oh, to what I Okay. That is a better idea, like okay. to have that actually happen, but like now I can't actually connect the dots anymore from that point because I think it would be too hard. I think yeah, we have Lex Luthor is playing an Iago figure. And so like he's like like getting in Batman's head, or like Bruce Wayne's head and but how does he know? How does Lex Luthor know? He has to know. Like, okay, we're going to have to have some cutaways to like Lex Luthor where he has been doing his research and he has he figured knows. out Bruce Wayne is Batman. I hate this plot point. <laughs> Lex Luthor knows who, who Batman and Superman are in some way. And yeah. he's choosing not to use that information yet. But he will use that information at some point. So yeah, he's like a, like a the snake in, in Batman's ear that causes Batman to have that that sort of dream and maybe even like put something in his drink or something yeah and like that like is making Batman really freak out and causes Bruce Wayne to like decide to be Batman again because he's been in retirement for a while while and maybe that's when 
you get that scene from the most recent trailer where he's fighting the dudes in the warehouse. Maybe that starts happening. I think maybe there's a period of the movie where he's not going after Superman, but he's going after criminals and just being Batman again. Yeah. And that's when Clark is and that's Yeah, campaign. that's where like maybe Lex Luthor is like dropping some stuff to Clark Kent a little bit. That's like, oh, this Batman vigilante. Like, do you really think that it's a good idea like to have like a vigilante so, so running Luthor around is in like, Gotham? So Lex is like the duplicitous. He's playing both sides. Yes, exactly. Right. He's trying to pit them against each other because he's a piece of shit. Right. And okay. so, and because if he gets Batman and Superman to destroy each other, that means that there's no one going to be posed to defeat his his clone Kryptonian Doomsday Monster because he wants to take over the world eventually. Right. And then buy a lot of real estate close to the shore of California, but not quite on it. And so then Superman, <laughs> Superman, <laughs> Superman like realizes, okay. Like, this Batman thing's not good. Like, this guy's way too fucking violent. Like, I played those those Arkham games. There's no way those guys lived. And if someone's doing that in real life, this guy's just a mass fucking murderer. I'm Superman. I can't let that happen. And Gotham City's not that far away from Metropolis. Oh, so. oh the other thing. In this world, remember, Gotham and Metropolis are across the river from one. Okay, so that makes it way easier. Batman, like, like yeah. So, like, that's where, like, Superman's like, okay. Like, Batman's, like, doing some raw fucking shit across the pond... Like, that's not cool. I'm going to go take care of that. And the, it, but I think he's not going to go there to, with the intention of fighting Batman. He's going to go to talk to Batman. But Batman is not a very talkative person, as we all know. And that's where we get the first fight scene. Yes, yeah, so this is where we get the first fight scene. Batman tries to take Superman out with a Batmobile. It's unsuccessful. And, and, and Superman, like... Tries just, to de-escalate. Yeah, de-escalates. And basically just incapacitates Batman, but doesn't realize that that's just going to make Batman, like, really pissed off and yeah. go off the deep end and spend a lot of money... Developing a big mech suit for himself. And I'm guessing the Dark Knight Returns stuff is Act 2. Yes. If this was Act 1, I think Act 2 ends with the the fight with all that stuff. Yes, and then Act 3 is where Doomsday comes in and they have okay. to team up. Alright, so let's walk through Act 2 really quick. Okay. I mean, we have... Is there anything going on with, like, Lois and Perry and all those other people in the background? Not really. Like, okay. I just don't think there's too much room for them. I think, like, like, I, like Clark has periodic conversations with Lois Lane that are probably very poorly written because it's like, we remember some of the romantic dialogue from Man of Steel. Like, like I don't remember specifically what the fucking line is, but that line when they kiss at the end of Man of Steel is a... That's a fucking zinger. So, yeah. Like, he has some conversations there... Batman has some conversations with Alfred because that's the only friend he really has. Yes, and and but it is coming to a head, and I'm like, I think in the background, Lex is doing all this stuff with Zod's body yeah. and getting ready for that. I feel like something specifically needs to happen. Like I feel like Lex needs to like like maybe Lex like finds some channels to drop some info to Batman. It's like secretly that makes Batman thinks he's figuring stuff out, and like the same thing on Superman that like makes them both think like. Like, oh, like, Superman's planning, like, to go to the Middle East. Like, like maybe, like, Superman's planning, like, some, like, armed intervention type stuff around the world. And then, like, Superman's is like, that's like, I hear that Batman dude's, like, he's starting to use guns. Like, he's, he's going lethal. Like, something like that, you know. But what if there's even something like Lex engineers some kind of situation where Superman has to do a big fight again with something, someone... And, like, it creates an issue where Batman almost sees the scenario for Man of Steel again and decides to intervene before any of that can happen. Yeah, there well, maybe, like, I don't know if we can, like, I can't think of, like, another... Because you would have to, like, like conjure up some, like, pretty d- terrible shit that Superman has right. to, like, really fight. But maybe, 
But maybe that is the, the nature of what Lex Luthor is actually dropping to him. Remember, we've got to integrate the rest of the Justice League. Did Lex Luthor, like, create Cyborg and he's got to fight Cyborg at I don't point? think... I, no, I have some ideas for how that's going to come okay. up. That stuff's all in the third act. Okay, okay. Is Good. Flash in this movie? Yes. Is Aquaman in this movie? Yes. So we have to do Wonder Woman, Flash, Cyborg, and Aquaman. Yeah, we got to do all of them. Fuck, okay. We'll get, we'll get to that, but there's no Green Lantern, and there's obviously there's no Martian Manhunter, because he'd be way too cool to be in this movie. Right, and there's no Green Arrow, which means we've got to figure out the Kryptonite Arrow thing. Right, okay. I, that's, I think that's easy. I think right. I think just Batman just does it himself. Like, okay. you don't need to... Or maybe... No, Alfred does it. I'm going to say that. Like, that's the reason why you cast Jeremy Irons is a bit more sprightly than the traditional Alfred. So, but yeah. Okay. So... Second act. Yeah, second act, we have... This is, like you said, this is where, like, the real Batman versus Superman fight happens. And it's going to be basically the Dark Knight Returns thing. I'm trying to think, like... Does it happen in Gotham or does it happen in Metropolis? I'm going to say that was in Gotham. Probably Gotham, yeah. Oh, but, like... I think it happens in Gotham just based on like what I feel like the footage from the trailer has shown. I feel like it would be a lot more interesting to have one of the fights be in Metropolis and one of the fights be in Gotham. But we'll have them both be in Gotham because I think that's probably what it is. Okay. And maybe that's like like in maybe part of the thing also with all of this is maybe Bruce Wayne is having some fears about Gotham being like taken over and sort of like modernized by like the the, the cultural imperialist forces coming from over like the cross river from Metropolis. Okay. And Gotham's is like the rundown piece of shit town and maybe like that's where he's like worried about if that Superman kind of represents some of that for him personally. Okay, so Gotham is bed and it's being gentrified. Yes. And and maybe like he thinks like Superman's gonna be responsible for destroying Gotham that's gonna like then Gotham's gonna have to be rebuilt. And basically, right. Metropolis's image, and just going to lose that unique, like blues kind of flavor, you know, yes. that Gotham got. All right. So the fight happens. How does it? Is there any specific catalyst we want to go with here? I'm, I'm again. I'm having a hard time coming up with anything very concrete. And honestly, it's making me kind of realize that there really was no good reason for them to fight Dark Knight Returns either. Well, that whole thing is Superman goes to stop Batman, but it's the opposite scenario here. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that, I think it is, I think they are sent to fight each other. I think yeah. Lex Luthor engineers something where Superman thinks he has to go fight Batman, Batman thinks he has to go yeah. fight Superman, and they're ready for the, well, Superman just thinks he can do anything, so he's an arrogant prick in this movie. And then Batman is in the suit, he's got the, he's ready yeah, he's for the prepared. He's, I think, like, maybe, like, Lex Luthor might be responsible a little bit for slipping some kryptonite-type business over to Batman. Yeah. I think that's, like, happened on the side. And again, like, and I think Alfred has like a sniper rifle or something with a like kryptonite cartridge in it. Yes. That like at some point he fires at Superman, so you get that thing where Superman tries to punch Batman in his power suit, and Batman grabs the punch. It's like what the fuck? But that's like late into the fight. That's, yeah, so that's way later. I'm just saying that's like you're having some shots setting up that like. Alfred is in on this stuff, too. Yeah. But I think this is the big, like, money shot part of the movie where we're going to get yes. a big fucking all-out brawl. It might be kind of cool. It might be infuriating. We'll find out. Like, yeah. We're not making value judgments right now. I just had a way better idea. What if... I'm going... I'm, like, digging deep for this stuff now. What if part of Lex Luthor's plan is going back to that Gotham stuff... What if he wants Gotham to be destroyed because he has some deals in place that, like, he would move in and rebuild it? I think that's almost certainly what's going to happen. Yeah, so, like, and that's, like, actually, like, what really the Doomsday thing is all about is that it's, like, it's a, like, his Doomsday thing is actually a plan B. Like, if this, if the Superman doesn't end up destroying Gotham in the way that he's hoping, 
then like I'm gonna unleash this doomsday stuff. And then obviously like he also has doomsday there like for like personal protection just in case the Superman stuff all goes wrong. But like I think that's what's really going on. I do too. Now some point Lois Lane gets kidnapped by Lex Luthor. Where's that happen? Fuck. Um okay no here like Lois Lane this is her subplot for the movie that's probably going to be like unbearably long and should have probably just been cut. She's in trying she's because she's an investigative journalist, and she's and this is in some way a Superman movie, so she has to be in the movie. She's investigating LexCorp stuff because she's maybe like she's catching some stuff. Of, she's like, gonna figure it all out before. Yeah, that she this. knows that like he's buying up some like weird like property rights and stuff in Gotham that's like a little bit sketchy, and so she's like going in and trying to investigate him. And there's probably some stupid scene where she like like uses some sex appeal or something to like like get her into his office. Like, through past his bodyguards, and then, like, she's sneaking through and getting stuff, and then he, like, shows up at the wrong time and is like, Well, 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 Mrs. Lane. How are you? How do I find you here? This is rather interesting. Do you want to come with me as I monologue maleficently as we watch Batman and Superman fight each other? Because that's where we're going to get all the stuff about the red capes are coming and and all those bad lines from the trailer. Yes. Yeah, so I think that's what happens. So he takes Lois Lane with... Him when he decides to go watch the fight because okay. obviously he's watching the fight. Okay, so the fight happens. It ends. I think they're going to do word for word the Frank Miller thing. I think yes. Superman loses. Batman wins. I, I Batman half wins, but like it's really just a standstill in the way that like technically the Dark Knight Returns thing okay. is really like they fight each other more or less to a standstill. Right, and I think then maybe they each go home, but Lois has figured it out and she gets away from Lex in some way. Yeah. And she is the one who tells Superman, who will then tell Batman, what this all was. And then I think Superman is the one who's maybe going to try to reach out to Batman. Yeah. But with his plans foiled, Lex is going to unleash Doomsday. Yes. Boom. I think we just figured it out. Yeah. So then, now you get Doomsday is coming out, right? And like, I think like... And at this point, we feel like we're in another movie, right? Yes. Yeah, so now we're in third act, and it feels like, yes, we're in a completely different movie. <laughs> and you have what is going to be like an exhausting series of fight scenes. But Doomsday is going to come in in the last act, and this is where all the other Justice League stuff has to tie together is now where this final act. We have set up Wonder Woman. She's, we've seen yes. Diana Prince, right? So. Yes, yeah, and like she's going to come in later. And like she's... like How deep are we getting into the Themyscira stuff, do you think? It's like, do we straight up know she's an envoy? Like, I don't even know... Not like, at all in this movie. Okay, that, none of that's... The, do you think like that's a part of her character in this universe at all? Yes. Okay. I do. But I don't think in this movie. I think we might get a reference to it. But I think, if anything, they're going to... I mean, if you look at the trailers, I think they're going to like play it for laughs. Like, she's going to come in to save those two at a key moment. Yeah. That's how they meet Wonder Woman. And this is like their their first steps into a larger woman. Because neither Batman nor Superman realize there are other heroes. Yeah. And, and it's something where... I'm just... Because I'm thinking, like, her whole thing has got to be that she is... Like, because I'm just going off of comic book stuff because I have no idea what they're actually going to do with her. But she's an envoy from Themyscira to, like, find out stuff about, like, the world of man. And, like, she's basically an ambassador. And that's, like, how the capacity in which she meets Bruce Wayne for the first time, as we already went over. And that maybe part of her struggle is, like, figuring out how much she should be involved in the outside world. Because Themyscira is, like, an insular island community of, like, Amazonian superwomen. So... Yes. Yeah, so that's just, like, just, like, the lay of the ground, that that's basically, like, the framework of what the Wonder Woman stuff is, that side of the movie. Okay. It's not, it's not a big part, I don't think. By the way, I think where we get the Batman origin story is after that big fight and, like, the calm before the final storm, that's where we're getting that. Yes. In fact, you know what I think it is? 
I think it's Superman when he goes to like try to make peace with Batman. Batman like has a monologue about it. Maybe yeah. And we get flashbacks. Maybe. Maybe I wouldn't count it out. Yeah. Because also, because we also have to keep in mind, like Superman absolutely knows who that Batman is, Bruce Wayne. Like he has yeah. to. Like that's just. I just want to like. Even though we like went and said like that Middle East stuff, it was a dream sequence because there's no fucking way. That it's like actually like the way more interesting version of that story that would like make it make more sense. But it, Superman used his fucking supervision to find out. Yeah. So, anyways, so yeah. Now Doomsday comes in. Batman and Superman decide no, they need to team up. But before they team up. Here's one thing that happens. So you have, I, I think his name is Vincent Stone. I can't quite remember what Cyborg's civilian name is. I know that his backstory is that he is like a high school football player. And that like a bad thing happens basically. Most of his body gets destroyed. But his father, I think it's his father, is like a super like genius scientist man and remakes him as a cyborg thing. So I'm thinking you have, you have a big football game going on. That's like it's like it's whatever's happening. I don't remember. Gotham versus Metropolis. Yes, Gotham versus Metropolis or Gotham High versus Metro High, and you've got Victor. I think Vincent, since so a V name man, he's like doing some cool football stuff. He's got the moves. He says, "I just wanted to say personally because I really love the cyborg character from Teen Titans." When he gets a touchdown and he goes "Booyah!" because that's what his catchphrase from Teen Titans. That's not going to be in the movie, but just for me, I'm going to say it is. And then, but that's where Doomsday drops, right? Okay. Like the the foot, and it's like all oh, like yeah, like football stuff. And then from on high, this this monster because I think because Lex wants it to make it seem like it's an alien invasion. So this monster just drops out of the sky, it like just lands in the stadium, just like carnage. Everything's destroyed. Almost everyone's dead. Victor is maimed. And and his dad like recovers his like like gnarled body. It's just like okay, I I we have the technology. I can fix this. Make bigger, faster, faster, stronger. Exactly. Okay. Yes. And then like wheels him away. And I don't think you actually see him become cyborg. I think you just set up that idea. I, there's no way he can be cyborg for the in fight. Like feel right. like. You have to set up his origin, and then he's going to come in in Justice League in some way. So I think that's where we get that out of the way. I'm also thinking there's no way Flash is actually involved in the fight because they would just win the fight because Flash is actually secretly the most powerful DC yes. superhero there is. And I think like we find some way to tie in Doomsday does something that causes a lightning bolt to go through uh, his window, Barry Allen's window that strikes some chemicals that fall on him and then he becomes really fast. Because I just want him to have the Flash origin story. I don't know. I think that actually could work. Like, you yeah. have a cutaway to that. Like, Doomsday causes all of this. Yes. I was just checking. The guy playing Cyborg, his name's Ray Fisher. He's 27, so the age could work with what you're doing. Okay. They could have him play young yes. and that could work. Yes. And then, then Aquaman is going to come in later because luckily Aquaman doesn't need an origin story because he's just the Prince of Atlantis. So I think he's going to come in... We're going to have a, the Frank Miller Batman Superman fight and the Prince of Atlantis is going to come in. I just want to re reiterate how silly But I just want to say that like we've only seen the Wonder Woman part like where she comes in with the trailers, but I think Aquaman's going to fulfill a very similar role. So yes. I think Wonder Woman and Aquaman are going to have similar roles in the fight that they come in and help out. And Cyborg and Flash are going to have similar, similar roles in that you'll see the first half of their origin. And it's probably going to feel really dumb. And I think maybe we'll have like a post credit stinger yes. that shows like what's happened to both of them. That maybe they both get taken away to like Star Labs or something like that. 
So I think that's that's where I'm laying the groundwork for like where those characters are going to be used because I think it's the only sane way to do it. Yes. And even that's a little bit stupid, like to try to do it that way because you're just jamming so much stuff that you're having to cut away to. Like, because I have no idea how like you would if you like even want to try to set up who Barry Allen is. Like, I don't even know how you would do that, and that feels like you'd need to do that to make those scenes. I think it'll be a cameo. I really doubt yeah. he'll be in it significantly, uh, but it's okay. So you have. But it also, just feels like it's hard to like. It's, it's so meaningless as a cameo, but that, I think that's what it's got to be. Yeah. So Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman team up. They stopped him today. Yeah. So well, so first, I'd like to like pace out this fight a little bit. Batman and Superman team up at first, and it's like they're like not one hundred percent like with each other because they just finished beating the crap out of each other. But then they're like, but this Doomsday dude, enemy. Enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, so they're serious business, and they start sort of like teaming up, but they're really losing the fight hard. And then Wonder Woman comes in and does she like does her stupid little CG jump from the trailer, and they're fighting Doomsday for a while, and it's like they're they're making good ground. But then I think maybe Lex Luthor like hits a switch that like maybe Doomsday like gets to become a super Doomsday kind of thing, like like injects more bullshit more serum, <laughs> like lightning strikes him or something. You know, I think Lex Luthor needs a slightly more active component in that fight as well and that's where then like Aqua you cut to Atlantis <laughs> and fucking Aquaman's in Atlantis and I have no idea what Atlantis is like in do, this movie do we get to the coast and like doomsday uh, something on the because these are coastal I think that, cities yeah and then like he's watching on like 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 Aquaman has like his, he's getting a report from his military it's like this, like stuff is going down on the surface world my lord <laughs> it's like Great. It's like our, our like thousand-year policy of like non-intervention or whatever is now going to be broken. There's also a slight chance that you introduce Aquaman at that same party. That's like he's also an ambassador for the Atlanteans. <laughs> it's like, man, Can't just- I don't know if you can fucking do that. Because the same thing is like Wonder Woman and Aquaman's origins feel so absurd juxtaposed to the tone of those trailers and what we know the tone of this movie is going to be. That's even if like Superman's a space alien dude, like he's way more believable than like the island of Amazonian superwomen and fucking the Atlantean people who've been living beneath the seas with their advanced technology for thousands of years and have finally decided to intervene with the goings on of the surface world. Like this is just like dumb. But yeah, so that's where Aquaman comes in. And I don't think you introduce him at that party because it's like... No, I don't think so either. I think we're going to get the cutaway at the end. Because it's also like, Jason, you don't hire Jason Momoa to put him in a suit, you know? No. Like, that's not what you do. So he comes in and like, you cut away to Atlantis. There's stuff going on in Atlantis. It's like, that last, it, the time has come that we must, like, join forces of the surface world. Maybe we jam in a, like, nod to some sort of, like, global warming type message going on. It's like, oh, like, like their seas are, like, growing hot, my lord. So... Okay. We have to go to the surface. So he comes up. They all team up to fight uh, Doomsday. And then I think uh, Lex Luthor does a thing to make Doomsday giant. And so then the four superheroes all call in giant robots that they get into that then all form together to form. I'm going to call it a Megazord. And then they fight him. Are you being serious now? No, okay. no. I'm just like I'm just saying the plot of every Power Rangers episode of all time. Okay. okay. Well, anyway, they defeat Doomsday at this point. They did, yeah, yeah. I think something happens. Like they all team together, do a cool super move to defeat Doomsday. Like Lex Luthor slinks away in the darkness by a thing. Soup's nose, because Soup's always nose. And then there's a scene where Superman visits Lex Luthor in his office, and they have like the first real scene together. I think as Superman. Yeah. Lex Luthor, and maybe, just for me, maybe, like, he, he heat visions uh, Lex Luthor's hair off, and that's how he becomes bald? I don't know. 
I don't know if that's a part of the movie. I want to hope that. I didn't want to say actually that Lex Luthor was born with like a genetic defect, but he's it's always been bald and swig. That's yeah. what it's got to be. That's part of his like like sort of Napoleonic complex kind of thing. Yes. And uh, somewhere in here, I'm trying to think what. This like I think you cut to then like you have some of that like Superman talking to Lex Luthor. I think you you also you cut to Batman talking maybe to Alfred and he's in his Batcave and I think Batman's the one who comes up with the idea of the Justice League in this movie. Okay, and it's like like and then they meet with like like Wonder Woman and Aquaman and Superman and like at Star Labs. I think like maybe that's where like the okay. Flash and Cyborg are being worked on and they're talking about like like this guy like like has like super like super fast powers and he's like but he doesn't know how to control him. It's like and he's like in a cell or something like a padded cell to like keep him safe and yeah. like they're working on Cyborg. It's like we know now that there are like threats that like one of us can't handle, so we have to all team together. And then the the last shot of the movie is Superman standing like in front of everyone, like kind of elevated. And he looks at them all. He says, "Avengers," uh, and then it cuts away. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like Batman and Superman go outside and the sun is rising, and Batman turns to Superman and he says, "You know, buddy, this truly has been the dawn of." And we <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. You did it. Like it's it's Batman looks at Superman after all this has happened, and like to have one last conversation. And I am being I'm not even saying this is a joke anymore, but it's like he says like it's like Batman gives his last monologue of the movie because like I hate this, but Batman's going to have the last word in the movie, and it's going to be basically just like too long. Have we, have we suffered through the long night of like anarchy and chaos? It's like now at last. With us all together, we can see the dawn of justice. And then as, smash cut to the title yeah. as the end, because they always do that in these movies. Yes. And then some, like, it plays over the credits. Like, that's the song, I think. That's, I know this is a Zack Snyder movie. I feel like that's what it is. Probably. Yeah. Well, we just described terrible movies. <laughs> and you know what? What's really frightening is I feel like we are not it. that far off from, no. like, like that Amazing Spider-Man 2-1. Like, there was, like... Nothing. There's, yeah, like, nothing was similar, but, like, it, because they didn't... Like, a lot of that, like, the, the stuff we were working off was, like, ultimately bullshit. But this, I feel like that is a really frighteningly plausible direction that the movie's taking. And I'm I, scared. Honestly, I'm especially certain you're right about the ending with that speech. I think that's going to be it. Because that's got to be, that was like a line in the script, and then they decided to make it the subtitle. But yeah, all of a sudden, I, that subtitle makes way more sense when you think of it in that, that yep, light. Yep. Fuck, man. This movie's going to suck. Or, here's like our funny alternate ending on the DVD is Batman, like the end of the movie is that like after all that happens, like there has been some like destruction committed to like Wayne Enterprise's property and the very end of the movie is that Batman sues Superman and that's where it is <laughs> and, and then the last movie the last line of the movie instead of title dropping Dawn of Justice at the end you have a like justice <laughs> like and we will now hear the case of Batman v Superman and then reverse shot to Batman and Superman standing or sitting at office's desks in a courtroom and then it cuts to black that's my for the fucking and the extended cut is just 30 minutes on the end of the trial yeah yeah it's all of a sudden it's like an episode of Law and Order they think get Sam Waterston to play Jack McCoy <laughs> he comes back to replies his role after like eight years gone <laughs> okay this was fun yeah man 
feel like we already saw the movie. Uh, we don't yeah. need to. Re- we don't need to go see it to review it. We know what happens. But I do like. Yeah, I think we should just like decompress a little bit here before we end the podcast. I feel like I've learned a lot of things by going through this process with you with this plot of this movie of that. The things I am now actually really excited about to see in this movie, not in any way that I think is going to be good, but I'm fascinated about how they're going to handle these problems. It's specifically how are they like? What are they going to do with the origin of Wonder Woman? Like, how are they going to introduce her and the concept of who she is and where she comes from in this movie? And how, and more specifically, how are they going to deal with Aquaman? Like, that is such a huge sticking point that I never really seriously considered. But, it, it like, it's Aquaman's origin story and Wonder Woman's. And not even just, like, their origin story, but, like, where they come from and who they are is so insanely outlandish in the face of the grim, depressing, super serious tone they have made for these movies with, like, Man of Steel. That even, like, like with the Superman origin, which is, like, you know, sci-fi, it's still way more... Understand, like, there's something about like aliens that feel way more plausible than a race of superhumans that live under the sea, or a race of superwomen who have lived on a secret island cut off from the rest of civilization. That just does not work in the way that like Black Panther in the Marvel movies can be the prince of Wakanda, the super advanced African civilization that has lived within like like concealed from the rest of the world for hundreds of years. Like that in the Marvel movies, like yeah, you can do that. Atlantis in the the DC movies, I have no fucking clue what that looks like. I think they're just going to go for it. I really, I think it's exactly what we described. I think we're just going to get the fucking cutaway to Atlantis, and it's going to make everyone laugh derisively. Do you think they call him Aquaman, or they call Wonder Woman Wonder Woman in this this movie? No, no. I think maybe they call Wonder Woman Wonder Woman, or maybe they. It's they a, I think it's a pun. I think yeah, it's, it's a joke. Cool. It's they're going to make a joke on it. Yeah, like like. Hey, like, it's Batman and he's Superman. It's like, who are you? Wonder Woman? Yeah. And it's like, and then, like, who's the fish boy? Aquaman? Ha! I think that's how Superman and Batman start bonding. (laughs) Is by making fun of the other ones. That's like, they're at Star Lab. Like, (sighs) Superman looks at this, like, poor, just mangled young man who's, like, being replaced with, like, half his body's being replaced with robotic parts. It's like... Well, I know who we're calling this young fellow. I think we just gotta call him Cyborg. I do think you're completely right on the Cyborg Flash stuff. That makes sense. Yeah. For them to do that. Because um, there's just no way that, like, Cyborg is Cyborg and Flash is Flash. Like, I just don't see that. Unless, I I mean, the other option is Wonder Woman comes in and she just does the Twilight bark. And then the other superheroes just flock to her. Yeah. And it's really lazy. And Superman's like, man, how did we not know there was a guy who could run that fast? That yeah, exactly. Really yeah. Yeah. No, I think we got it. I think we nailed it. I think we're at least like 90% there. Yeah. Maybe we just don't even have to go see the movie. I don't know. That, that might be nice. <laughs> no. All right, Sean, I'm very excited. One week from now, you and me are going to talk about this movie for real. Yeah. It's finally come. This moment has finally arrived. Yes. At last, we will see the momentous battle where Batman and Superman face off. I think in the first time in the character's history. I don't think anyone's had this idea before. What I'm most excited about, though, is, like you said, Jonathan, a week from now, we will get to sit down here and we will be able to reek out the true Dawn of Justice. <laughs>